This is the Dreadful Podcast on TV Podcast Industries. Welcome back to part five of our discussions about Penny Dreadful. This time we're talking about Penny Dreadful Season 2, Episodes 8 to 10. Welcome back, fellow Penny faithful. We're here with part five of our discussion of Penny Dreadful, season two, episodes eight to ten. I'm one of your hosts, Derek. Hello there, fellow Darklings. I am one of your other hosts, John, and welcome to our COVID-19 special, yes, where you can bring out your dead and examine the world of pestilence and plague in the Victorian era, yes. (laughs) I'm really hoping it's going to be over by the time this episode is released, John. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Uh, And yes... Lastly, I am uh, I'm here as all. Well. This is Ray. I'm back to talk more Penny Dreadful. Hopefully, you know, steer clear of any coronavirus uh, <laughs> themed things. Yes, yes. Hopefully, it'll all be over and done by the time this episode comes out. Uh, we will be releasing this episode before April 26th when uh, Penny Dreadful City of Angels comes out. So, uh, should be all done and dusted by then, right? Absolutely. What better way to avoid monsters, demons, and coronavirus by self-isolating mm-hmm. indoors, listening to a lovely podcast about Victorian horror monsters. Remember, sterilize those hands. Don't cough in the face of your loved ones. And of course, uh, remember... A good shot of alcohol will always uh, take your mind off anything. <laughs> You're probably all sick of hearing all about that by now, uh, weeks and weeks after those after those uh, instructions being given out. Oh, absolutely. And so let's get some instruction from Penny Dreadful, I reckon. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Just a reminder, these episodes are going out first on Patreon, so each of these episodes will be released in advance over on our Patreon group. If you support us over on Patreon, at patreon.com slash tvpodcastindustries, you'll get each of our discussions about every episode of Penny Dreadful leading up to Penny Dreadful City of Angels. Let's get into our discussion about episode 8. This episode was directed by Carrie Scogland. She went on to direct episode 4 of Punisher and 5 episodes of Handmaid's Tale. And really interesting, I know you guys are both Marvel fans, she will be directing 6 episodes of the upcoming Marvel series Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which is due out at the end of this year. Good stuff. Yeah, that'll be good, actually, to to say. I mean, those, um, I mean... I was very impressed with the the Punisher show and mm-hmm. uh, a fan of The Handmaid's Tale as well. So it bodes well for Falcon and Winter Soldier. Absolutely. I was yeah, trying to work definitely. out whether she's the showrunner for the show because getting six episodes in the director's chair is quite a significant amount mm. uh, for a TV show. So um, kind of intriguing. I think there's only six episodes in it, but uh, still some details to be released about Falcon and Winter Soldier. So we're not 100% sure. We'll probably know that later on in the year. And we will be covering that on TV Podcast Industries as we do with all the Marvel shows. Yeah, I can't wait to get back into the old Marvel shows, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marvel, Netflix, The Defenders, and uh, all those associated series seem a long time ago they now, do, don't they? to be honest. <laughs> um, but now Disney Plus is entering into the world of Europe, um, and of course, yeah, their their slate will be coming on stream as it does. And if mm-hmm. anything, there'll be uh, a lot less dolls 
I'm imagining in the Disney Plus shows, John. So, uh, yeah. well, yeah, exactly. Although you'll be able to buy them, it would be Actually, quite annoying or really freaky if you know you had Captain America with kind of that hinged <laughs> jaw, like the ventriloquist puppet. Yeah, that would puppy, be... puppet, um, and he is a puppy, though, isn't he? Really? <laughs> he is. um, and uh, but yeah, that would be really freaky. Although they could do Marvel zombies. Yes, they mm. could. They could Marvel ventriloquist doll zombies. I like it. <laughs> but the episode once again written by. John Logan. John, do you want to tell us what they gave us with the summary for this episode of Penny Dreadful? Sure. It's now morning and John Clare confronts Victor over permitting Lily to go out with another man. Victor has no idea where she is and he realises he has little control over her in any event. Claire visits her when she is at home alone, but isn't prepared for what she reveals. Meanwhile, Inspector Rust calls on Sir Malcolm to learn why he visited Scotland Yard the previous September. But Malcolm refuses to divulge any details. Mr. Lyle has completed translating the diary, which explains the evil they are facing and the nature of their most potent weapon against it. Sir Malcolm breaks the spell Mrs. Poole places on him and goes to her home to confront her. Meanwhile, Angelique finds Dorian's secret room, which contains a very special painting. Oh, yes, it does. really does, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, I will be talking about that at my point because I have it as finally. Mm. <laughs> it's been two seasons uh, building up to that point. Um, Ray, do you want to kick us off with your big moment from yeah, this sure. episode? I, I, um, yeah, sure. I really enjoyed this episode as well. There are a few things I guess we can pick from it. Uh, the The standout for me was I always love an underdog, you know, and I always mm-hmm. love um, yeah. some of the minor characters standing up. So when Simbene uh, opposes... Uh, the witchcraft or the enchantment over Sir Malcolm and he basically manhandles him and thrusts him mm-hmm. into that room to kind of essentially just say, you know, wake up to yourself. Uh, I yep. thought that was a really good, uh, a really good moment. Uh, again, it showed the strength of some Bene as well, but um, mm-hmm. tying into that as well, I guess with the overall main point, it, it is Sir Malcolm, uh, I guess, confronting this enchantment that he has and, and he goes through the struggles of it. Yes, absolutely. Yes, and Benny uh, telling him to know who he is, mm. man. I love us. Absolutely, really good moment for Sam Benny. You kind of, we've always said he's kind of a background character in the show, but has some great moments throughout the series. And this is almost a moment where you go, okay, now I know why he's here. Mm. He's a really strong presence that Malcolm needs around him to help him through all the things he goes through, really. But such a wonderfully filmed scene as as Malcolm uh, goes into the room and starts seeing these visions of his family uh, as another ball. Effectively, this uh, this beautifully lit ball that they have going on as you see the return of his children of Peter and, and Mina and his wife as well uh, in that room dancing with him and trying to encourage him back to himself. Yeah, I, I thought um, I, I just love the fact that this room, you know, it's been there all the time. and We've never been into it. And uh, some Benny, you know, throws some Malcolm in there. Uh, with his line about knowing who you are. And it's kind of like, you know, this dusty room is almost like Sir Malcolm's memory. It's mm-hmm. dusty of his kids. Um, like, he, he's almost forgotten the good times. It's all the guilt um, of, you know, Peter's death, him shooting Mina, and probably just, in some ways, a, a abandoning his wife in some respects, yeah. uh, keeping up a, a facade of, of their relationship for, uh, you know, the social status and standing. Um, and that's why I think, you know, when it comes alive with the ball and you get the colour 
coming back into the room. I just think that's a really wonderful mm. uh, moment. And um, okay, and, and and all the guests, they're they're all kind of these ghostly white. Uh, but I, I thought this was really nice, and mm-hmm. um, it's certainly it, it's that power. I suppose in terms of the title of that 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 um, those mementos. Um, of his past um but they're the good mementos mm-hmm. they're the things that put a smile on your face and that combating this evil you know where we see um evelyn pool effectively slightly aghast that um her plan or her spell uh, her enchantment has been has been broken yeah. by by this positivity in a sense uh you know the the good um as opposed to the evil so this was yeah this was really nice um one of the things i thought i caught in this as well which i'm wondering whether it broke the enchantment as well was Mm. the floor was really dusty and there is a moment towards the end when it goes back to the dusty room and you have some bernay victor and mr lyle stood you know having watched uh some alchem sort of, I suppose, dancing by himself. Mm-hmm. But in the dusty floor, it looked to me like there was the shape of a scorpion. Um, oh, wow. It looked like there was a tail with a slight point mm-hmm. um, and one half of the, the, the claw of, of the scorpion. Yeah. Um, I mean, it did, it did look... Yeah, it's when you pointed it out, we had to rewind it and just have a look at the scene again. And it does look like they were at least trying to go for the shape of a scorpion in the right. floor, which is very cool. Maybe we're reading too much yeah. into it, but it did look like it that. Did, it did look like that, and mainly because it was mainly feet doing sort of the body and the tail and, and, and the claw, but there were kind of parts where you kind of just thought that's possibly just a little bit of CGI to help hmm. add that kind of look to it. And Not that it was obvious. I yeah. mean, it's just because I noticed the point um, at the tail and I thought that doesn't look like it's been done by feet in right. a sense. Yeah. But I thought that was, if, if that is the case, I thought that was a really cool way because it's almost like it, in reliving his memories, he's drawn this protective symbol that helps to break the enchantment as, as much as the, the good memories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's Vanessa by his side in a sense, even though she's not there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I thought that was quite cool. Yeah, right. I mean, I didn't didn't pick that up at all, but that that is pretty cool as well. I mean, could it even be as well? Maybe just an unseen thing that this connection that Sir Malcolm has with Vanessa, uh, and Vanessa protecting him in a, in, in a sense. Um, so whether she's done it directly or not, but since she's such a big rival of Evelyn Poole, um, could mm-hmm. her magic have or enchantments have spilled over onto Malcolm? And he's they're kind mm-hmm. of like Malcolm's defense systems. Um, Potentially, but no, I didn't pick that up at all. That was a, that's a really nice touch if they do that. Yeah, exactly. Maybe I'm just thinking, um, <laughs> maybe it's not there at all, but it, it did. It just looked uh, like it. I'll um, see if I can pull an image of that uh, for the show notes for the episode and yeah, see if I can yeah. share that with everybody and, and so they can see it as well. I did like um, Malcolm just before he was thrust into the room by St. Ben. I loved his kind of speech where he's realizing that he's under the manipulation of somebody. He realizes this isn't him. His his speech where he's saying, um, I was cruel to my wife and children and then I became famous and I was even more cruel to them then. Have you seen me grow into a happy person? That's not who I am. On the day of my wife's funeral, I was dancing at a ball. You know, mm. it's all of these moments where he's realizing everything that he's done over the previous few weeks since he met Evelyn Poole. 
is not the type of person that Malcolm is. Yeah. And everybody's been looking at him going, oh, sure, he's just in love. It's grand. Yeah. Like, he's absolutely fine. He'll come back to himself in the future. But even he's realizing the things he's been doing and the things he's been saying are not representative of the type of cruel man that he was in the past. Mm. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, it kind of reconnects Malcolm to his good side here. But at the same time, uh, I love how it contrasts with then the dark memories that Evelyn Poole puts on him mm-hmm. sort of towards the end where he is he, he's seeing the worst of what he has become. So mm-hmm. there's that nice bookend here, mm-hmm. I think, within this this episode. Um, I also really liked um, the intercut between Malcolm in his drawing room with Evelyn Poole sort of just playing literally with his heart. Um, <laughs> and uh, dare I say it, you know, with the Malcolm fetish, and Evelyn Poole does have a Malcolm fetish mm-hmm. as well. She <laughs> is... I think this is what I kind of liked about it when she has that conversation with him before she effectively throws him into torment uh, in her parlor room is I, I like the sort of tragedy of Evelyn Poole in this moment where she's like, what's good as youth if you don't have anyone to share it with? Mm-hmm. Um, and she really does make the pitch to Malcolm to be, to be with her forever. And he will do that. But, the trade-off is that, unfortunately, um, it can't happen because the only thing he will accept is if they give up Vanessa, yeah. which she can't because of her own master mm-hmm. um, certainly is a harsh boss. Yes, he is. Yeah, I mean, you, you um, really do start to see the cracks in Evelyn pull around here as well, and, and it becomes apparent yeah. she's not that faultless just machine of an evil being as well. And, you know, they mm-hmm. kind of humanise her. She's still terrible, obviously. She's very, <laughs> she's a yeah. Um, yeah. horrible person. But um, they're starting to inject that, so you do kind of get a bit more sympathy towards her. And that moment, yeah, when when uh, Sambine and Sir Malcolm uh, go into that ballroom, and for that slight second, she's kind of like, oh, something's wrong with my, with my magic. It, it, that was a, a mm-hmm. really nice touch. Um, I thought yeah. as well. This uh, this main point is um, mainly around, obviously around Malcolm, Esther Malcolm, and how uh, he's kind of struggling with this enchantment that he has over him. But as I as I introduce it with Simbene, I just love how fearless Simbene is as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, even with his relationship with Ethan Chandler, um, but mm-hmm. also with this and with with seeing that the witches when they uh, invade. Um, the mansion, he just doesn't give mm-hmm. a second thought about it. And I just love that about yeah. him. Um, and it, yeah. it just adds to his mystery because we still, we learn later on a little bit more about him, but still not enough mm-hmm. for my, for my liking. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, no, he's a really, he's a really great character. I, I think Sam Bene is a very cool character here. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love his kind of, he is almost like this immovable object. Mm-hmm. He, he's this stoic person at the center of it. And he comes in at the right moment with the right line to kind of keep people back on track yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, he's a man of few words, but the words that he speaks absolutely have weight uh, and uh, force. Uh, and other people listen to him. And I think that's one of the things that's really good about this is, you know, um, it because he's... He's a butler, you know, because also he's from Africa. That There's all these kind of power relationships that could be with Sembene. Mm-hmm. And yet he is seen as part of this crew that, that there's a, an equality there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, they really do take on board um, 
his wise words. Yeah. Um, and you see how with Ethan, you know, and Ethan's troubled past of effectively the through the Indian Wars uh, cultural su- suppression, it's almost like he is trying to remedy his past as well by his relationship that he develops with Sembene. So he doesn't say much, and he, but the, the, there's so many kind of linchpins to other people, um, whether it's Sir Malcolm, Ethan, and, and Vanessa. Mm-hmm. He just has those quiet words, those quiet moments with them, or, you know, he forcefully, like he does with Sir Malcolm, uh, throwing him into the ballroom, mm-hmm. he just comes in and says, you know, cut the crap. Um, yeah. This is what we need to do. So, yeah. like, I, I find I found Simbeni when I first watched this, and it's only just grown with this rewatch. Um, him an immensely interesting uh, character. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I and I really do like him, even though, in a sense, you could almost say he's a supporting character, but he is more than that for Absolutely. sure. Yeah, and, and I'm kind of glad that he did do that to Sir Malcolm as well, because um, I'm not sure about. Both of you, but around this time of the season, um, I understand that Sir Malcolm is is under a spell and such. But I, w- I was starting to kind of miss the old Sir Malcolm <laughs> around this stage. Um, yeah, I-, I was used to him being like the the bedrock, you know, the leader of the team, and just mm-hmm. to see him act in in that way, um, maybe it was deliberately done um, a little too long. But it was kind of like I was kind of no. Oh, He's got to. He's got to break out of this sooner or later. Like I yeah. didn't really like seeing yeah. him under that spell. Um, yeah. So if that was obviously their intent, then it was it was brilliantly done because um, mm-hmm. I was really happy once he was starting to um, confront these demons. Absolutely, because it was really from about the second episode onwards that we haven't seen the Malcolm mm. from season one that we saw. You know, he was the supportive rock for everybody around yeah. him, the, the one that was uh, bankrolling everything and the one that was telling everybody to, uh, to what they needed to do as the leader of the group. Whereas from, from the beginning of this season, he's been totally backseat and totally controlled. Mm. I absolutely think it was shaving his beard off that, yeah. uh, that severed the con- connection with that fetish because the fetish does still have the beard. That was right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of, it kind of uh, reduces the influence, let's say. Yeah, the, there's the chinks in the enchantment <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, and yes, it was also Simbene in that room after malcolm makes the speech he is the one that goes this is not the man i know um he he is the watcher and has been uh, since the start as you say a very quiet uh, character but when he wants to be loud and when he wants to be heard he's absolutely heard by everybody so really good point ray really like that one uh, john do you want to give us your big moment from this episode yeah, it's um, it's twofold. It, it Caliban or John Clare confronting Lily uh, over her dalliance uh, with Dorian, uh, but in turn he unleashes the monster, the true Lily. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've kind of said with four parts Broner, mm-hmm. um, you really see that uh, Broner is alive and well uh, as she counters this confrontation from Caliban. And it's such a powerful uh, scene. I, I I really, really enjoyed it. I love the fact that here Lily steps up and there's a whole host of things here. You know, earlier on in this uh, this episode, we have Caliban coming to, uh, to Victor saying, where is Lily? You made her for me. She is mine. I will take her. All this possessive talk from Caliban. And of course... Lily comes back to say that men, you know, silly little men asking, you know, she, she recounts through Broner's voice, um, effectively 
being a prostitute and having men forced upon her and um, that she she references back to the corsets that they must wear that they must go through the slavery of marriage this idea that um you know women are absolutely subservient and caliban in all his wisdom and all his prophetic announcements in all his quoting of romantic poetry is no better than normal humans. And she really makes that clear to him. And I think this is so powerful. And I, I loved it from her. Um, she really um, stands up to him and makes him small. Mm. But I think as well, she knows. She knows who she is and where she comes from. Yep. She knows she's been created. Um, you know, she talks about Victor. She, he has brought forth um, demons. Um, but not only uh, that, she also then, you know, after mocking Caliban says, but, you know, effectively we are brothers um, and we have been created to rule. Um, we are the conquerors. So that, and this is really reflective of what Caliban, uh, has said in the past mm -hmm. to Victor through season one that, you know, they are a new breed. They are part of the mechanized industrial world yeah. and they are superior. So this, this element has come through in her as well. Absolutely. Which I thought, um, was really, really nice. And of course, the other element here is that both of them, have the notion of killing their creator mm -hmm. and of, of uh, strangling Victor. Uh, we have Caliban saying, you know, when all of this is done, I think this is at the start of this episode, he goes, you know, he threatens Victor with, I will return to you and I will show you the monster you have made. Uh, a real threat that he will come back and kill him effectively. Mm -hmm. I love the fact that then Victor does kind of like, as a scurdy cat, run off and stay and sleep over at some <laughs> alchems for about the next two weeks. I oh, think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think he runs off into the arms of morphine for a while. I think and so. he stays over in, yeah, uh, he, in Malcolm's he, house. Yeah. He's certainly been spooked. Yeah. Um, I have to say, um, Billy Piper is phenomenal mm. in this part. I think that moment where we see her Northern Irish uh, accent yeah. rear back up in that moment where she's calling out about being dragged down uh, laneways in London and then just having money thrown at her because she's a prostitute and that's the way she's been treated. There's a very specific line after she calls out uh, being in the service of marriage or the slavery of marriage. Then she says to Caliban, doesn't your face belong beside mine? in this power move, effectively, is what she's saying. So she's not saying that the two of them will be uh, wedded to each other and living together for the rest of their lives. She's saying, come stand side by side yeah. with me as we take over the world. And it's a it's a really good twist of phrase from, uh, from this character, effectively realizing her own potential. But that moment when she says... I've known this from the beginning. We thought that people's memories return because we'd seen that from Proteus and we'd heard that from uh, Caliban's discussions. But how early did she know and how long has she been pretending to not know mm. so that she could do what she needed to do? Like we saw that moment where she killed the guy in the, at the end of uh, episode seven, where she killed the guy from the pub. But before that, had she just been waiting for the moment when she's been allowed to do what she wanted to, uh, waiting for the moment to be allowed to go back on the streets and pretending to be the innocent? Um, you know, like that, that's fascinating to me. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a real change in the dynamic mm -hmm. for sure. Admittedly, um, I found it, I enjoyed it. Don't get me, don't get me wrong. Billy Piper's performance was brilliant. Mm -hmm. And gee, she's got some nice juicy lines in it, doesn't she? I, I was oh, yeah. watching it going, oh man, should be eating this up because this is what actors love to do. She gets to Absolutely. expound on, on, you know, just her character and, and all that. It was really cool. But admittedly, mm -hmm. I found it quite, I did find it quite jarring. 
um, that she all of a sudden has turned, you, you know what I mean? And, and mm-hmm. everything that you mentioned, Derek, is, is spot on. And what I loved was that how she kind of reverts um, temporarily to that Irish accent, which kind of uh, yeah. it really does link it into, okay, she has recalled this, and, and her saying that she's known from the start. But if I'm to be critical about it, I would have loved maybe a few more cues at the beginning because – Either Billy Piper has played it so convincingly or her character has played mm-hmm. it so convincingly in the previous episodes that you just can't tell that she knows this at all and, and she's hiding it so yeah. well. Or the fact that Billy Piper was instructed to play it as, you know, as this innocent character. Because uh, I yeah. found the switch yeah, really, yeah. yeah, I found it really um, abrupt. Um, uh, but it did add to the effect of it where, where she does confront John Clare. And, um, mm-hmm. man, if you thought John Clare was bad, you know, Lily is John Clare on steroids. <laughs> I mean, Absolutely. She is the like worst. Hearing, that, hearing that line from her where she goes, I will never kneel to any yeah. man like you will kneel to me, kneel for me. It's mm. just so powerful yeah. in that yeah. moment. I do think, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure whether she knew from the very beginning because obviously she's reborn mm. and obviously she'll go through a period of time where she'll have no idea what's going on but i certainly think there was one cue which was where they were having the conversation victor uh, was dressing her up for the first time and has that conversation about uh, women being enslaved before and i think there was a little switch that kind of clicked from that point onwards where she had that focus where she now is at the point of i will never bow to another man mm. yeah and i think dorian's ballroom i think um, so you know she there, does yeah. say I feel I've been here before. Yeah. And I, so mm-hmm. I, I think there are some, and it, maybe even with the guy that she picks up in the pub, it is effectively kind of, she's prostituting herself yeah. out a bit for a one night stand oh, uh, yes. with, you know, and the, maybe there's something there. Her, think, and and yeah. maybe a bit like with Vanessa, it was the act of having uh, sex that yeah. released. Okay. The, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I, yeah. I agree. It, it's a difficult transition mm. to do. Um, and maybe, um, I think jo- maybe John Logan wanted that to be as much of a shock mm. to us. Yeah. Um, as it was for Caliban being confronted in that moment. Yeah. Uh, but I do know maybe... that it's Caliban that calls it out. The Caliban yeah. is going to her, stop pretending to be so innocent. I know that you're stronger than that. I know that you're my sister, effectively. I know, that, well, I know that you're the, you're created the same way mm. that I am. So you have the same power and that just makes her switch and go, all right, pretense is off now. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to see the real me. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I think for sure, episode seven, by that point, yeah. I mean, you do see her colours coming out, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Dorian's um, the ball as well. Uh, yeah, she, to me, she was still kind of um, – she seemed to have a, a like a vibe of wonderment, you know, without, yeah. I mean, without, you know, having like a little thing to, to go for the viewers. Mm, is she, is there a bit of uh, malice under that? Like she was totally innocent. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, that's yeah. just a small quibble because um, yeah. we get this very interesting character in Lily now. And, uh, Absolutely. oh gosh, yeah. And John, you mentioned about that quote. Um, I found it very effective was when John Clare made that threat to, um, to Victor. Um, I, I had yeah. in my, my head notes that it was very Shelley-esque because, uh, Frankenstein's yeah. creature, these threats that he makes. I mean, that, that famous one in the novel where he said, I'll see you on, on your wedding night. To me, that, that kind of hearkened the same way. Like, you know, when you're all happy, mm. when we're far and gone and you think that I'm gone, Absolutely. one day, some hour, when you least expect it, I'll be yeah. back and you're going to be, <laughs> you know, yeah. toast. Yeah. And, and there's, there's these yeah. commonalities between 
um, John Clare and Lily ultimately. And, and I think part of that is the desire to kill their creator, Victor. You know, uh, she says, we'll come one day and strangle Victor, um, put their, their, our hands around his neck and, and, and squeeze. Yeah, that it's very Shelley esque, this idea of your creator and being born or created into torment and, and having to take a vengeance against him. So, mm-hmm. I mean, absolutely, uh, in the spirit of, of Mary shelley for yeah. sure and yeah. i do think the true horror in all of that is you know victor is he believes a scientist just going out doing what he should do and he wants to bring people back to life and create it and take down the veil between death and, and life he's done that and the monsters that have cre- he's created have now turned on him they're now saying we will come back and kill you you will you will fear us effectively so mm-hmm. there's nothing he can really do about that they are created they are in the world now so yeah. <laughs> so there's nothing really he could do to avoid the faith that they're now proclaiming on him so uh, i don't think he's going to be making friends with either of them many times yeah. it's strange as well because um although he he does harbor john clay a lot of anger towards victor still uh, i do believe i mean if you compare him with lily um, John Clare's rage has been tempered so much by, I guess, his encounters with other humans that have, Absolutely. have, yeah. um, forced him to kind of grow and learn and change his views on things. I mean, he's still, mm-hmm. he's still very angry at, at Victor. Um, and especially because of this, this promise for, for creating a mate for him. And, and that's not going yeah. too well. But if you look at Lily, I mean, she's very hot-headed, um, and, and she has that so much rage still built in, uh, and, and I think that's the the big difference between the two. She's kind of coming in intense, while whilst John Clare's had that the conversations with Vanessa, you know, he's, he's had conversations with Vincent Brand, like he's found other people, mm-hmm. so it's kind of you know softened him a little. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder if it's, you know, the meeting that Lily's had is with Dorian and Dorian's mm. kind of willing to uh, accept her for who she is and kind of help her on this path that she's already on. Whereas Jean-Claire is meeting people who are treating him nicely and then turning on him. So yeah. uh, like, it's interesting that that moment where he comes back to Bronan is so possessive, that speech that he's giving to her about your mind, she was built for me kind of thing. That's off the back of the treatment that he got from Lavinia. Putney, uh, where she said he has colder hands than any human should, um, and that there's something wrong with him constantly. He had kind of been developing that relationship that you possibly thought there was some kind of love interest going on between the two of them, and he comes back to the house so angry at everything that's happened to him with that relationship, and not and not feeling that he's a real human uh, that that's why he directs it as that so. but dorian is also the double-edged sword he is the honey trap he's you know the spider and the fly um mm-hmm. so uh yeah he promises a lot um but unfortunately will toss you aside um literally and physically um as soon as uh, he's done with you. Speaking of which, mm-hmm. that is basically my main point for this episode. The portrait of Dorian Gray. Finally. Woohoo! Yeah. Didn't expect to see it in this way. I thought we were going to see that moment, effectively, where he goes in, looks at his portrait and heals himself. I thought that was what mm-hmm. we were going to see in the show. I absolutely didn't think that poor Angelique uh, mm-hmm. was going to be the one that would see uh, this portrait. Um, he's ruined their relationship effectively he i think you guys talked about it last time where i was saying that he's being very supportive of of angelique in her moves to uh to be the person that she is i suppose um yet what we see at the beginning of this episode is she's suddenly going you you're leaving me behind you found a new uh plaything in uh, in lily and you're leaving me behind you're not doing anything and he just brushes her off 
but she finds the secret hidden room in his house. Um, it's an interesting moment, I have to say. I'll talk about the portrait in a second, but I have to say it's an interesting moment that they still hide it. You have that reveal that she's standing in front of the painting looking at what's what's up there as Dorian arrives back home. They have the discussion. He says, now you've seen the real me. I know the real you. Can you accept me? And Angelique goes, yes, I can. But unfortunately, the champagne glass has been poisoned by Dorian. Um, and as she dies on the ground, he smiles saying, I never think you would accept me for that. So was that as shocking a death for you guys as it was for me? I think so. I mean, I think here, um, what I really love in this scene is that Dorian has been saying he accepts Angelique for who she is. Um, and that is what's given her the confidence. And in the end, what it really is, is sort of dust and ash because mm. he doesn't accept the fact that she can accept him. He yeah. can't take the other way around. And in fact, in the end, he treats her in exactly the same way as the men in the brothel house that she has come from. That they, they discard her um, and effectively taunt her in the end. And, and so the hang-up is with Dorian here. And I like that. It, it's the fact his weakness is he is so insecure. He comes across as, uh, as the, um, you know, the confident man, the explorer with social convention. Mm. And yet in the end, he can't simply accept someone else's love and acceptance of himself. Yep. Um, and so that is what I really like about this here. The poison as well. It's just so Dorian, like, Absolutely. um, it, it's weak. It, it's, you know, in a lot of stories, you know, the po people that poison, they're, 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 they're classed as being, you know, the spider that hides in the darkness. It, it, it's the, the weakness of it because you don't confront and have the sword fight kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And it's always classed as that. So it's no surprising that Dorian does this. It, it's duplicitous in its own way, yeah. poison. You, you offer something as rich as champagne to toast one another. Well, yeah. And then, and ultimately what you're doing is is stabbing them in the back yes, and he asks, with the poison. And he asks the question, will you accept me while she's drinking the champagne? So he's already poisoned her. He yeah. doesn't care about what her answer is going to be. He's already made up yeah, his mind. Yeah, I was going to actually say that would have been pretty funny. I was thinking like, if he, he gave her the champagne and asked her the question... And if you were surprised at her response, you probably oh hang on, hang on, love, don't 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 drink that. Don't But John, I think you make some really good points there as well. I I came at from it in a different angle. Um, in mm -hmm. the I'm far less um, sympathetic to Dorian. I think that mm. I'm starting to agree with your points, John. But the way I, I was thinking about it was I I don't think Dorian cares about anyone at all. Um, Absolutely. He, uh, you know, regardless or not whether Angelique had feelings for him or not, he, he doesn't care. Um, he, mm -hmm. exactly um, as mentioned before, he has a plaything. She was his plaything. She was interesting to him. Um, he's now mm -hmm. found Lily. She's far more interesting. Um, so yeah, he yeah. just has a, you know, he's lived long enough. He, he, he doesn't want any bar of Angelique. And that's how I saw it. Um, but it's very interesting it does make sense about his insecurity of saying, yeah, yeah, I can't accept that someone would actually accept him. Um, that yeah. actually does give him a bit more of a, a, a sympathetic layer. But I still like to see yeah. him as terrible because like when you see that first shot of Angelique just kind of 
um, reclined on the couch, and she's obviously been neglected uh, when you see mm-hmm. her. Yeah. One of the worst things I think from Doreen was, is this thing, how he just tosses people aside. And so, exactly. yeah, that yeah. was one of the, like, yeah, I, f- I find him a totally horrible, horrible character, which is obviously he's meant to be. He but yeah, it's just all yeah. that sort of stuff. So I have no sympathy for, for him. And, yeah. uh, yeah. I, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? I'm sure, you know, I'm, I'm in my 40s now and I'm, I've met people like this mm. in their 20s. You've met people in college that were like this who just throw partners aside, left, right and center, and then they settle down. There's a point that they get to where they meet the person that they're going to spend the rest of their lives with and they settle down and have kids and they're fine. And it feels like Dorian is just stuck. Mm in that college mindset yeah. from being a 20-year-old for the rest of his life. Yeah. And everybody that meets him looks at him and goes, you're beautiful, I want to sleep with you. He sleeps with them, and then he makes the decision as to whether he sleeps with them again, forms a short-term relationship, or just drops them and leaves them in his wake. And sometimes it's like the, I'll never call you back, or you'll never hear from me again kind of thing. Whereas Angelique moved in with him. He allowed her to move in close to his house, all that kind of stuff. So it sounds like he was setting up a whole relationship with her, and then suddenly she's just tossed aside because he's found something new. So um, I hate people like that. So seeing somebody that's probably lived for, if you judge the portrait, probably lived for a couple of... 20 or 30 years doing this over and over again it's it's crazy so. I, yeah i mean it, it's the dichotomy of of dorian gray he's open to everything yeah. yet is closed towards the thing that matters mm-hmm. which is someone else's acceptance or love yeah. of him himself which he despises yeah um, and that's that's the, the the point of dorian gray yeah yeah, yeah. As he says himself, just to move it onto the portrait, I reckon, mm. is, you know, this portrait is sin made manifest mm-hmm. here. So it's his sin. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and what a portrait it was. Yeah. Yes. Uh, to answer your question as well, Derek, I'm with Angelique's mm-hmm. death. I wasn't, I wasn't too surprised only in the fact that with the portrait, um, the portrait mm-hmm. uh, is built up as this, you know, very mysterious thing. And I think once anyone has sets eyes on it, you know that they're yeah. probably going to be dead dongers. So, <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's such a shame. It's one of those things that you go through as a fan of a show like, um, like Walking Dead, for example, as you guys know, I'm a big, big fan of Walking Dead. So it's a thing that you go through sometimes when a character is taken out and killed, where you go, she's got so much story to go. Mm. They're building up this really interesting character that we haven't seen on TV very often. So, so much story you can explore. And then suddenly it's like end of this episode and you're going, Oh, okay. We're not going to learn anything more about that person's history yeah. or their future or how they navigate this world. It's, one of those things you always have to accept in, in shows when they kill off a character that's really interesting so uh, that's probably why I was so shocked because you're going oh this is going to be really yeah. interesting maybe they will become this power couple because she's the only person that he'll reveal the portrait to maybe that's oh, what yeah. it is so uh, yeah that, that's where I that's where I came from um, but the portrait itself so uh, I, I talked to you guys before so I've read the the, uh, the portrait of Dorian Gray the, the novel quite recently so um, the description in the novel is slightly different to uh, to the portrait itself but I think it's brought to life fantastically on the screen here. Um, what you kind of hear from the novel is that Dorian is so obsessed with this portrait he checks it almost every day to see what impact the things that he's done each day has had on the portrait. So I kind of like the little touch of that. What we see in here is just after he kills Angelique, you see a flash of blood appearing on his cheek as the uh, portrait kind of screams at him effectively. Mm -hmm. So uh, this 
bend image of an older version of himself uh, sitting in shackles uh, yeah. in this portrait is just fantastic. Whoever the production designer is that that decided that this would be the version of the older Dorian Gray, give them all the money yeah. <laughs> to do whatever they want to do in yeah. the future. That was fantastic. Really looked um monstrous uh, in in its portrayal on the in, in the portrait itself yeah, which I, is exactly what you would expect from what we've been saying is the dark heart of dorian for the last two seasons you know it's been building to this moment where we reveal what he really looks like behind yeah. the facade of this young man yeah no i i thought it i thought it was great i i loved the jarring lunge towards <laughs> uh dorian um you know and so the chains there are for uh, for to to keep him there to to keep him as a prisoner within the portrait um i love the fact that the eyes looked really real like mm, they yeah. did it you really got the sense of someone being trapped within that portrait with the eyes yeah. um and then just the ravages of dorian's sin on is on the the portrait skin, skin yeah. uh was was just so good so i, I was really you know i i it could have been like a deflating balloon. You mm-hmm. see the portrait and you go, oh, okay. But this really felt um, properly sort of like scary. Yeah. Um, the idea that he was lunging at Dorian and you see Dorian's face kind of take that moment and almost a little step back and then smiles as he realizes, um, you know, it's still business as normal yeah. for him. Yeah, yeah it was a, a very, yeah, very decrepit interpretation of, of Dorian. And, and, um, it's really good. Apart from the those really um, inhuman movements of the of the the painting when it comes towards Dorian as well, uh, on first glance as well, you, you kind of you see this um, hideous figure, and then you and then I had a, another closer look as well, and it is modelled after the actor Reeve Carney as well. So that the face is mm-hmm. very much like him, but just really old under all that kind of muck and mess uh, is really yeah. his face yeah. aged. So uh, they did a really good job and, and totally met my expectations for for this portrait. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, that's it for the main points about uh, this episode of Penny Dreadful. Guys, any notes that we haven't talked about? Um, yeah, I've got hundreds. loads. I've got millions. Um, <laughs> hundreds of thousands. Um, yeah, I just had a look into Memento Mori, um, obviously the title for the episode, um, which translated from the Latin is Remember You Must Die or mm. Remember Death. Um, and, uh, I just like this fact that it, you know, it, with some alchem, it's the reminders of his own family mementos yeah. of, of death. And, um, it, just reading a bit more on it, it was, or it is a philosophical or ancient practice of reflection, um, that has kind of dropped out of fashion, which, or, 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 or usage even, um, that, Everyone, no matter who you are, king or peasant, rich or poor, clever or stupid, healthy or infirm, will die. Yeah. And the great leveler that is uh, is death. And you must remember that you will uh, come to that point. Um, and I suppose within this era, be judged. Um, so it, it's almost like a check and balance in the past that was used to reflect on your life and how you treat others because you will be judged there, there on after. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was um, really good. There's only two certainties in life, death and taxes, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, taxes, indeed. Um, <laughs> Any other notes? Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, as I say, I've got millions. But wait, oh, yeah, go just, on. A, just a short note as well. Um, with I found the opening scene, which carries on from the uh, episode before, with Lily 
talking to the to the corpse of the man that she picked oh, up yeah. at the mm. bar, I found it quite um I guess symbolic as well that she's talking to a corpse, um, similar to how Victor loved talking to her when she was before she was reanimated. So there's a, a, a good, nice yeah. little cycle there as well but also just what she's saying yeah. was very scary um yeah and i found it quite lyrical as well in the fact that uh, she mentioned something about she she totally hates men right but um, mm. she doesn't want them to grow up to stay a boy and and for this guy that yeah. she's just killed oh good now you don't now you'll never grow up uh very yeah, chilling absolutely. stuff yeah, without a doubt. I love that she also knocks over the house of cards as yeah. she leaves the house as well. Because <laughs> I was wondering when uh, when they arrived in the home and you saw this house of cards built up, uh, I was going, that's not going to last very long. <laughs> no, exactly. And I, I think that kind of, it, it, it is potentially, well, I, I, it probably is saying that Lily will become a disruptor mm-hmm. in Victorian society mm-hmm. uh, moving forward. Um, so I like, you know, she she breaks the house of cards Absolutely. It's, and its foundations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, it was a great moment that um, I think my, I have another note. Um, I, I like Inspector Rusk saying it seems we have a Quartermain. I'd mentioned about Samalcom being um, Alan Quartermain uh, from the... The, the comics, uh, effectively, wit by Alan Moore, um, the League, oh, the of, League of Gentlemen, the, the League of Gentlemen, mm. um, and uh, but not originally from that, but not originally <laughs> from that. No, so I, I had a little look back, um, and this was from uh, H. Ryder Haggard's novels, King Solomon's Mines, mm-hmm. um, and he's a hunter. Um, but there were some other interesting things here that obviously derive from the quartermaster in the army, who is basically um, a very resilient and practical, versatile person. But um, that Africans um, referred to quartermains as makamazan, uh, which meant a watcher by night, which was a reference to their nocturnal habits and keen instincts, mm, which I think, you know, for this story is very, um, very apt. I thought sure. that was pretty good yeah. um, as well. I also did like Inspector Rusk and Sir Malcolm's uh, moment on interior decoration where um, Inspector Rusk is, is inquiring about um, his predecessor and you said you must hunt a, a beast. And of course, he's got his his rifles, uh, three rifles as a mm-hmm. tripod, uh, which uh, Inspector Rusk sort of notes and <laughs> Malcolm goes, I can decorate my home any way I see fit, <laughs> um, which I thought yeah. was really good. Um, and the door made of steel yeah. to keep out of beast. And he goes, well, there have been robberies. <laughs> um, and I just like this, this kind of uh, little lighthearted yeah. interaction between the two definitely definitely uh, one of the note i want to just mention from this episode i love the use of the nightcomers um throughout the visitations to evelyn Poole's house um i love that poor mr lila's having the conversation with evelyn and as he's leaving the house it's just this labyrinthian walk where he's trying to find the front door <laughs> yeah. and in the background you see the nightcomers kind of flashing in and out uh in in, in behind him and hecate is the one that's that uh, approaches him towards the end but the same thing happens when malcolm arrives as well he comes in through the front door thinking he's alone and you see the nightcomers in the background. It's a it's a great gothic horror moment yeah. as as they use these flashes of the uh, of the witches in the background. Very cool. Almost it, John. One more note. I do. Yes, um, it is just to say and the confirm that the verbius Diablo has been fully translated here. Yes, and we yeah. get that it is two brothers that have been cast. Ooh. 
out of heaven, one to earth and one to hell. The one cast out to earth will feed on blood and relates to the, the vampiric element of, of um, this story. And the other one to hell will feed on souls and Lucifer. Because obviously mm-hmm. first season is very much around vampires. This season is around the devil uh, in, in hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought that was uh, really nice to get this kind of this idea. That's the shock ultimately is that there are two Lucifers mm, yeah. um, here from the, the Verbus Diablo. Um, and we have some Malcolm correcting um, Mr. Lyle that actually it's not Hound of God, it's the Wolf of, of God as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so just, you know, it puts a different perspective on, on Ethan Chandler uh, and his transformation. And just creates that epic battle that you know is coming. You mm. know, it, it's any, any type of mythology has to have that epic battle that's on its way. And us as the audience piecing together who all of these characters are and putting them all into their places exactly, within this yeah. prediction, I suppose, or, uh, or this prophecy uh, is always really cool in these kind of shows. Yeah. And the final one <laughs> is I just want to note that. I love the that antagonistic relationship between Evelyn Poole and her daughter mm. Hecate. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and I think it's just because it it, it kind of leads into the next few where we see Hecate uh, with a plan of of her yeah. own. Even so, early yes. on um, in the season, you do see this kind of bubbling away and it, it's starting to really kind of show itself now. And we've seen with Evelyn Poole that she's not infallible. So uh, with Hecate mm-hmm, yeah. kind of nipping at her heels, you kind of sense yeah. something's coming. Absolutely. Yeah. Just just kind of stabbing at her. I think there's a, a line from Hecate, perhaps you aren't as powerful as you thought. Maybe I should try. <laughs> it's just, shut up, daughter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> really, really good. Well, she just throw her out of the um, the voodoo or fetish parlor, which I quite liked. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just remember who commands you. I really, mm. really enjoyed that. That's it. That's the end of our discussion about episode eight, season two of Penny Dreadful, Memento Mori. We'll take a break and we'll be back with season two, episode nine, and Hell Itself, My Only Foe. Hi, I'm one of the high priests of Conchu Ray, and I have the sacred privilege of providing you the loony listener with a podcast honoring marvel's very own moon knight so join me and a host of others at into the night a moon knight podcast follow us on facebook twitter and instagram or support the show by becoming a patreon member into the night a moon knight podcast it's time to get your conchu on Welcome back, fellow Penny Faithful. We're on to episode nine of season two of Penny Dreadful and Hell Itself, My Only Foe. I'm one of your hosts, Derek. Hello there, fellow Darklings. I am one of your other hosts, John. Yes, come join the merriment. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of Putney's freaks. Hello, I'm Ray. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Nice to have everybody back for these last couple of episodes of this season as well. It's really, uh, really fun to talk about. Um, We'll kick straight into it, I Mm -hmm. guess. If you guys are happy to. Yeah, fire away. Excellent. Uh, the episode was directed by Brian Kirk. This is the third episode he directed of Penny Dreadful, and he also directs the finale of this season as well. I love how they give each of these directors their kind of bucket of episodes where they direct them back to back, so it feels really film-like. Yeah. Uh, I think you, each one of them has their own little stamp uh, on what they do with each of the episodes. So Brian Kirk has, has delivered some of the best episodes, really, of the season. He gave us uh, Nightcomers, the flashback episode, with Paddy Lapone uh, in the episode, uh, and he's also got this episode and the finale. So, 
uh, lovely consistency from his work on the show. Um, also, the showrunner, John Logan, writing every episode, does give that uh, certain vision to the show as well. So, John, do you want to tell us what they gave us with the summary for this episode? Sure. Ethan and Vanessa's stay at the cottage is interrupted when Ethan's pursuer, Warren Roper, catches up with him. They soon make short shrift of him, but Victor Frankenstein arrives and they return to London to rescue Sir Malcolm from Mrs. Poole. Inspector Rusk is waiting for Ethan, but doesn't arrest him. Sir Malcolm's friends and colleagues agree that they cannot go to Mrs. Poole's house in the night when the witch's powers are strongest, and will instead go in the morning. However, Vanessa seemingly agrees, but leaves the house on her own, intent on saving Sir Malcolm. The others follow, but it's a full moon, and Ethan loses control. Boo. I know, boo. (laughs) Damn it. Silly episode. Yeah, stupid The impending doom of the arrival of the full moon. Yeah, lots going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's kick into our big moments of the episode then. Um, John, do you want to kick us off this time? Yeah, it, it is the attack on the pool villa. Um, in that sense. And, uh, yeah, it kind of relates to our boo hiss, um, <laughs> with, uh, you know, we, we get Sembene's backstory here, um, j- just very briefly. Um, but we, we get a, a sense of why he's there with, um, Sir Malcolm in, in London and, and not in Africa. Yeah. Um, which I, I really liked. It does, um, give that lovely complication to um real life as opposed to the the history tales that maybe we get um and also is his friendship with ethan mm-hmm. um uh, but at the same time uh, it is r.i.p sembene um as a result of i suppose what we were dis- discussing in the previous podcast episode his his stoic bravery and mm-hmm. um, him willing to be unflinching in in the face of, of danger uh, and to really step step up to the plate um when he needs to um but yeah i mean Coming to Sembene's backstory, you know, those marks on, on his face, which have, uh, you know, they're fascinating. Is it sort of decorative ritual? Uh, what it, what is it? But the, the marks mean that he effectively was a slave trader. Mm-hmm. Um, and so was both feared and hated, um, in, in his life. Uh, and I, I think this is a really interesting take, uh, for the character because, yeah, unfortunately, that dark part in uh, our history is massively complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, and indeed, uh, I think Sembene is embodiment of that complication around the African slave trade yeah. to um, North America, Caribbean, even to into Europe. So okay, yeah. um, I, I thought that was really uh, interesting, you know, coming from uh, close to Liverpool, which very much um, has a lot of its Georgian wealth was founded on slave trading. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it's quite fascinating seeing this, this, um, I suppose additional complication to the general history. Well, yeah. Given around slave trading, the involvement effectively of, of Africans in that, whether willingly or whether through um, the the stick, I suppose, whether through the carrot or the stick. Yeah, um, I feel like from from um, Sembene's admission here that it sounds like he went along willingly. He was a, a local facilitator for the slave trade, but regrets it. Um, it's one of the elements from history that the people that were most significantly involved in the slave trade get away with zero punishment for being involved, yet the local facilitators, because yeah. they're there and because they're on the ground and known locally before 
it began, I suppose, they're the ones that get the maximum amount of punishment. So it feels like he's been banished from South Africa, even though he regrets what he did, it, he has to live with it. And it feels like he's yeah. been banished. And that's why he's with Sir Malcolm here. Well, so. as he says, he, I found kindness in this house. Mm. Um, but, it, but it's that divide and conquer element. It's finding those local rifts um, yeah. between different parts of, of Africa where they pit one against the other. And, uh, you know, and that divide and conquer rule that used here or it was used in India or wherever in that colonial period mm-hmm. to pit um, local against local. Um, and it, it's it's a really sad element. And of course, Sembeni has found himself involved or, or a part of that divide and conquer and so feared and hated in, in his own country and is, is effectively in London as valet, uh, to Sir Malcolm where he has in a sense uh, escaped that. Mm. Uh, so I, I thought that was, it's an, it's a nice touch. I like the way John Logan touches on these aspects of history of that time as well. You, you see that with Lily and the, the place of women in Victorian society. Mm-hmm. Um, you see it in, in a sense uh, with Caliban or John Clare in terms of sort of outsiders um and mr lyle um as well so i i, I find I, I find these touch points that john logan brings uh massively um sort of interesting absolutely yeah there, there had to have been something massive i guess that was part of some Benet's history um because we were all wondering what is it and and um and it is quite shocking to to think that this guy who's so he seems so, um, you know, upstanding to everyone and so kind mm-hmm. to everyone has this horrendous history. Um, and, and for someone yeah. to be, sh- I mean, short of being a mass murderer and, and being a totally despicable, mm-hmm. uh, citizen of society, he's actually, he's done something against his own, um, you know, his, his fellow, uh, countrymen. Uh, he's been ostracized yeah. as well, which is, he's lost his identity. Um, so, mm-hmm. and he regrets everything. So you can only imagine how heavy that weighs on him, uh, and how much yeah. he wants to kind of, uh, redeem himself. Uh, so again, mm-hmm. it, it just it really does enrich him as a character. And, um, absolutely. And I think added to that as well, I, I wanted to also just add his relationship with Ethan. I think John Logan's yeah. done a, a fantastic job with building that, um, gradually yeah. over the season. Um, if not a little here and there in, in season one, uh, it's, it really does. So towards the end of, of this episode where we see them stuck together, um, it's mm-hmm. kind of fitting that they're they're both there alone together. Um, it's yeah, also as scary as hell. I don't know about you, but the fact yeah. that you had some better in there and you kind of feel like you're in there with him, you know that Ethan's going to mm-hmm. turn because that full moon's coming. And it's, oh, yeah, how so. scary was that? Because there was no way out. Um, I think that was a really yeah. great way to end that episode. It absolutely was, and, and I was hoping against hope. I did go directly on to the next episode because I was hoping against hope something would happen there. You know, there would be some yeah. stop. Simbene would not be killed by uh, by uh, Ethan attacking him. Maybe he would be he would also become a, a werewolf in the future. Maybe that's what happened. He just bit him and he was pulled off him, or something uh, would happen. But no, it's uh, it's quite a quite a, a deathly end yeah, for Simbene. But 
but very stoic and and uh, as you say that the character himself realizes that he has to sacrifice himself mm-hmm. so that Ethan can live and Ethan can fulfill the destiny that yeah. he has available to him uh, I think that's that's also really important for the character because he is a very strong character but the explanation that we get in this episode of him being involved in the slave trade and his regret for it does I think really underline why he's able to hang around and be a member of this team with all of these other monstrous people because he knows himself how monstrous he is for the things that he did. Mm. And I think it's a really good explanation as to why he's able to accept what Vanessa's doing, what how he's able to accept who Ethan is and Va- and Victor Frankenstein yeah, and also exa- Malcolm because definitely. he's also done monstrous things in his life, which we just didn't know about till now. Mm. Yeah, um, but, Def- yeah, definitely. I- and I think coming back to the sacrifice, you know, because ultimately in that correction of the translation by Sam Alcum in the previous episode to say the wolf of God rather than the hound of God, it is only Sembene that knows who Ethan truly is. Mm-hmm. Whilst Vanessa may have inklings and certainly they dance around that um, at the cut wife's uh, cottage uh, in Ballantree Moor, she doesn't know until um the moment she sees it yeah. in the next episode so um the, the, this is real sacrifice and even that Simbeni stops ethan from killing himself with the mm. bullet and he he says i am just a man you have been chosen by god mm. again going back to the the translation that mr lyle has done so this is i mean this was really sad for me i was almost thinking i i really hope there is some kind of supernatural element um that you know almost kind of black panther type thing that it, you know he he will somehow get reborn maybe not as a werewolf but mm. um i i was hoping that there was some element there but uh, i was just thinking the likelihood you know that the from the stories of werewolves mm. is similar to the vampiric power that it can yeah. transfer to somebody else. If you get bitten, you become a werewolf. So I was kind of going, oh, next episode, we're going to have <laughs> two werewolves. Which one's the wolf of God? But well, unfortunately, there is that great shot where you see Ethan taking uh, his his takeout um, and uh, some Benny's struggling and then kind of his his face and eyes kind of going quite dead looking so his takeout surely you mean his home delivery well home delivery <laughs> delivered yeah, by okay, Hackersy, yeah. Really. um deliveroo um <laughs> by Hackersy, yeah. Yeah. but uh but i mean ultimately this this moment where they are trapped together in the the spiral staircase and um, also comes from uh Hecate's plan against mm. her mother, which involves Ethan. We have Hecate uh, earlier visiting Ethan, uh, indicating that he should um, not serve the Galilean god, but the winged Lucifer. And um, and you know this is a this is a plan to effectively trump her own mother. This is a power play between Hecate um, and. Evelyn Poole, mm-hmm. of which I think Evelyn Poole is not fully aware of. She knows a game is being played to some extent, and certainly Mr. Lyle does, but uh, she doesn't know the, the true implication here. Uh, and this is bringing the, the wolf of God into um, the, the witch's coven to uh, potentially unleash it on her sisters and, and, and mother here. So I I, I kind of like that. Um, also, Hecate leaving through the mirror uh, mm. was very cool, actually. Oh, absolutely. Um, I thought that was uh, superb. Yeah. Um, and just to your point about the labyrinth nature of this house, mm. um, I I loved I loved that where they're all, you know, both Mister Lyle, Victor, 
um, and uh, some Benny and Ethan all coming into her house. You know, it, it's it's lovely and dark. It's gothic, but it's labyrinth. Um, that you know that at each turn there's a disorientation to these intruders into the house, and it's really reminiscent for me of Hell House uh, by Richard Matheson, mm-hmm. uh, and even then the House of Leaves that you seemingly. Uh, whether it is in reality or just by the trick of geometry, there seems to be this this endlessness to, of corridors and, and doors uh, within this house. You know, like the TARDIS, effectively. Mm. Um, and so uh, this this is really really cool um, because yeah, yeah th- those two two books, Hell House, Richard Matheson, and House of Leaves by uh, Mark Danieluski, um, are just superb in mm-hmm. creating that horror from your home effectively yeah. or, or from a, a house uh, never really good a, never read a better horror book than house of leaves oh. absolutely fantastic highly recommended for anybody who likes reading horror it's yeah the best. definitely and hell house being the original um yes. obviously by uh richard m matheson who also did i am legend oh. which is also about vampires yes. yeah that's right that's right uh, yeah, some really good references. I really love the um, the house as well. I think it really mm, yeah. played into this whole, uh, you know, let's get the band together and let's storm um, the front, uh, the gates. And and I l- yeah. loved how they're a little, you know, the, the house had character because if we take Ethan and Timbene, there's this the, these little tricks and um, booby traps happening, and and you've got the witches coming mm-hmm. out of the walls. You've got Sir Malcolm in another room somewhere. He's got some other sort of magic cast upon him and he's uh, dealing with his own troubles uh, i just love how the house mm-hmm. has its own character in it and it, it yeah. it's as dangerous as well it, it is as dangerous as the witches themselves um and, and in the Without heart of it somewhere yeah. there's that that creepy dollhouse with with evelyn paul mm-hmm. um yeah exactly <laughs> absolutely yeah, yeah i felt like a bit, bit of castlevania or a, a little bit of a like like yeah exactly like the um the approach to taking down dracula where everybody's going into mm. his mansion and there's something going on in every room to disorientate it's disorientate them or uh, throw them off the scent so uh, yeah really really like this in the episode indeed from the production notes for this the the set designer for um the the witch's house did the curved um corridors to give that sense of endlessness but mm-hmm. also to uh, make it appear bigger on the smaller set oh. that they had to make it on yeah. as well. Yeah. So uh, to give that sense of vastness to this huge Victorian villa, mm-hmm. um, but obviously building it on uh, on a set. So mm. the, the, that trick there uh, is a nice little bit as yeah, well. Definitely, definitely. Ray, do you want to take us on to your big moment from this episode? Yeah, I, I thought, um, apart from the obviously storming um, the witch's headquarters, I thought... Um, to take a look at John Clare's story at the side, and uh, there were big things happening there. The, the big thing for me in this episode was was um, the reveal of, I guess, Lavinia and, and more of the Putneys um, and mm-hmm. what they have planned for John Clare. And, and this was... Uh, it was like watching a, a hunter kind of lead a rabbit to a <laughs> to a trap here. Um, Absolutely. I remember when I first watched this... Uh, I was I was duped and I couldn't believe because she plays it so well, uh, um, mm-hmm. being the the really caring, thoughtful, blind daughter, uh, and, and she yeah. leads John Clare in and bam, he's in there. He's one of the first. He's the first of one of many freaks that they hope to uh, capture and and make money from in in Putney's um, waxworks. 
so it was her turn of character and, and a bit more of the Putneys coming in and um, poor John Clare stuck in his cage. Mm-hmm. It kind of it kind of moved that storyline onwards. Um, and we we did get yeah. an inkling of of uh, the husband and wife, uh, obviously having other ulterior motives. But Lavinia, that was the final nail in the coffin. Yeah, I think it's just it, it's so brutal of her as well because yeah. I think when you contrast that with the conversation that John Player has been having with Vanessa when he's been meeting up with her and the two of them have been talking poetry to each other, you almost felt like Lavinia was also somebody yes. that had that relationship with John Clare and for her to go, um, you know, what's that book inside there? And he reaches down to pick it up and it's like, it's some more of your crap poetry, mm. basically. Not everybody's into poetry like you are. It's so boring when you talk about poetry and I've had yeah. to listen to it over and over yeah. again every day until this plan came into action kind of thing. And it just, it's like a knife into his heart, even just her saying that to him, let alone him being locked up. It's her saying the friendship you thought you had with me and the connection that you thought we had was all a lie to get you to this point. It's a really, uh, it's like pulling the rug out from underneath them. It's really harsh. Yeah. I mean, that's twice that, um, uh, a lady has said that to him, Lily in the episode before yeah. having a, a go at his poetry. And now, uh, Lavinia, um, what's she say? Not everyone shows your mania for poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I thought this was really good because. I mean, at the start, I think in episode one, and he comes to the waxwork, um, to the Putneys for, for his job. It's like, you know, this is this new stage. Uh, Mr. Putney is immediately, you're kind of going, is this like Vincent from the Grand Grignol? And of course, uh, no, ultimately is not. Where, um, you know, at the end of season one, Vincent has to, uh, let, uh, Caliban go from his service, um, s- slightly reluctantly here, um, Mr. Putney is forcefully keeping, um, Caliban or John Clare now yeah. within his service, um, against his will. Uh, and you have that great moment, um, previously with Mr. Putney, uh, where he talks about, uh, you know, when the devil knocks that he's not distorted. Um, he's beautiful, a, a siren. Um, and I think Lavinia here is, is that siren as she locks him in Mr. Putney's great sort of ballyhoo, his mm. new ballyhoo. Um, and as I suppose you, yeah, there's, there's also the references to maybe, uh, Lily being that siren or indeed Dorian being that siren yeah. a, as well. well. I think John Clare is thinking about Lily when he's mm. saying this. He's, he's thinking about that person that would lure him in there, but it turns out right in his in his eye line is is the actual yeah. siren that's luring him to his uh, his his fate i suppose um but it, it's a, a fascinating conversation i also like he references you know um if i was to build my own version of this it would be pandora with her box and inside that box would be a mirror showing your own horror to yourself effectively so uh, once again the horror of humanity visiting upon the creature again yeah. it's uh it's He's got such a tough story uh, a lot of times throughout the show. You know, I think you talked about it at the start of the season, right? And were you asking the question, will he trust people? Because everybody mm. seems to be so nice and to yeah, him. Exactly. And, and look what happens to him <laughs> once again. Yeah, true. I mean, yeah. And there's, um, I like it, that really nice little technique that's used to play on the trope of, um, because mm-hmm. we as viewers were lured in, um, Lavinia being the blind, girl um this thing about uh, she doesn't see his uh imperfections on the surface level she sees his true self within so surely she will get him um uh, yeah. that's how i kind of took her at the beginning and, and of course she came across like that as well so um i mm-hmm. liked how that was turned on its head and um 
yeah, and it's it's Lavinia who is blind and she's still terrible. Like she's still horrible. Yeah. Um yeah. She's awful. Yes. Yes, but uh, obviously a, a nature versus nurture question mm. there. Her parents are absolutely horrible as well, oh, you know. Definitely. We have uh, we have Mr. Putney getting so delighted with himself about the success he's making of this house of horrors that he just wants to make it even more horrific and it doesn't matter whether he's going to have to entrap freaks as he calls them. You know, he, he's going to take everything on board just to make more and more money for himself. Mm. Uh, and the rest of the family all seem to be on his side. So, uh, yeah, really, really sad for uh, for poor John Clare. Um, will he ever find solace? Uh, nobody seems to be w- really willing to to deal with him as a human or as a as a, a being that they can uh, treat with any kind of kindness. Mm. So, um, yeah, sad, sad little moment. Mm-hmm. Is that it for that point, Great. Uh, yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, I'll jump on to uh, my big moment from the episode because... We have the two immortals coming side by side together, the two grotesque immortals coming side by side together, Lily making Dorian join her uh, in her quest for control of the world. Uh, I I just think it's really important here because we said there was a great moment within the ball where we had uh, Dorian and Lily dancing and also dancing around their previous uh, relationship or their previous moment together, where it's all laid out bare in this conversation with Dorian, where he says, uh, do you recognize the room since, since the ball? And then he goes, I've also had photography sessions in here. Lily, or is it Mm. Brona? Um, And then Brona kind of says, or maybe it's some divine admixture of both of those things. Uh, So suddenly revealed that she does remember Dorian. She knows everything about what happened to them before. She knows exactly who he is and how monstrous he is. Uh, I just really like that they've finally kind of laid it out there because we didn't know when we had that conversation between the two. You didn't know whether I think I said uh, you didn't know whether. Dorian has just had so many experiences with so many people that he completely forgot about that one night Mm. that he took photographs of the dying Brona or whether it was something that he absolutely remembered this massive moment in his history and that he was fully aware of who she was. So uh, so I like that the later that there I also like that he's willing to accept her monstrous nature. And she's willing to accept his, and she knows there's something else about him, so bites off his ear and then goes, yeah. show me your power. It's so cool. <laughs> yeah, that that was uh, go heal yourself, my beloved immortal. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for me, I I actually, I just loved um, the call-out of being immortal here. So Because it, it's not something I was really thinking about with Dorian or even say with Lily and, but it's this idea of the immortals, mm-hmm. you know, Zeus on his mountain in Olympus or Jupiter in the heavens. These, this Roman and Greek gods. Yeah. Uh, and certainly. Or Wolverine. Yeah. The, 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 the <laughs> tale of, <laughs> well, exactly. The, 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 you know, this tale of these immortals, um, trying to, uh, challenge humanity from their boredom and uh, you know looking down on them and playing with their creations mm-hmm. um, and whilst that's slightly inverted here with with lily having been created by a human nonetheless i, I kind of like that idea of how how lily sees herself um, above humanity yeah. um, and will now go and play with them in a sense and how dorian in any case has been playing with them for however long he's been yeah. doing it. Um, Absolutely. You know? And not only does she see herself above humanity, she also sees herself above Dorian. It's tell me your secrets and kneel mm. to me is, yeah. uh, is the invitation she has. It's not, it's, it's actually 
probably a less attractive offer than she gave to John Clare. John Clare was stand by my side after kneeling uh, to her. And now it's uh, kneel to me uh, and tell me everything about you kind of thing. So, uh, so yeah, it looks like she's about to set up the army of the, of the immortals basically. Mm. Um, yeah. With a know. bit of rough and tumble mm-hmm. with Dorian. Um, like that is one earlobe nibble um, <laughs> for is. sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. He does look quite shocked he about does, it. Does. I, <laughs> I do get the feeling that, while he is healed and restored from the sexual encounters he's had in the past, he had the the uh, the pretty violent sexual experience with uh, with Vanessa, where she was cutting bits of his face with her with her nails and uh, the knife and that kind of stuff. But I feel like he's never had an arm lopped off and regrown before. So I wonder if having his ear take ripped off by uh, by Lily, I wonder if he's kind of going. I'm not too sure whether I can grow an ear back. That seems like a massive thing, rather than just healing quickly. Uh, growing an ear back seems quite different. Well, he goes into his his secret chamber mm-hmm. for the portrait, and I can just imagine the portrait rolling its eyes and going, "Oh <laughs> my god, will you not just?" You know, a little bit of friendly slap and tickle in the yeah. bed, Dorian, not rough and tumble. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, um, now I've got to got look even more grotesque. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No wonder the portrait wants to lunge at him. It's like, <laughs> like, will you just stop it? <laughs> I mean, at this stage as well, Lily doesn't know about the portrait, right? So for all intents, mm-hmm. it could have been Dorian's twin brother coming out, you know, ta-da, <laughs> you know, I'm, a, I'm all, <laughs> exactly. you know, my uh, injured brothers over there. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's really interesting that Lily has chosen Dorian over John Clare, um, considering that mm. how like alike they are, Lily and John Clare. But I think she must be just allured to or attracted to uh, Dorian's nature, which she knows she probably can work with, um, and he'd be more amenable to doing, you know, to world domination than say John Clare. So mm-hmm. uh, it's a, a very big moment in the in the season because it's these as you say two titans coming together and it's like oh gosh you know how bad dorian is you know how evil lily is Mm -hmm. now oh gosh we're in some trouble here so um at this stage i'm kind of like going where's john claire i'm going to be rooting for him now so (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, but i I suppose that's it isn't it like there's a there's a certain vulnerability to john claire that dorian doesn't have Mm. um so while lily and, and john claire may have been created uh, in the same way, she has a power and she has uh, a, a will to take over the world. Yet uh, all John Clare wants is to settle down with the person that was created for him and kill the person that created him so he can't do it again. Uh, that's not Lily's plan, it seems. She's uh, much more uh, bent on domination uh, yeah. than, than anything else. And that, that absolutely matches her quite well to Dorian. But uh, yeah. yeah, super villains being created in this episode. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> That's my major point from this episode. Any notes from the episode that we haven't talked about? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's one big moment and a couple of notes, John. Okay, it's yeah, not yeah. seven big moments pushed into notes. Um, <laughs> Go on, John. My, no, my notes just on Inspector Rusk. I really mm. uh, love this character mm-hmm. um, because he is menacing. and the, There's a real inevitability about him. Um, that he is unstoppable, um, in his pursuit. And I really 
like that. Yeah. Um, if anything is going to freak Ethan out, it is this um, menace that comes from Inspector Rusk and, uh, you know, n- none more so than um, the fact that he touches on otherworldliness, um, that he, you know, he can't put it in a forensic report log or capture it in a photograph, but there is something there that he will get to the bottom of. And, you know, he will get to the bottom of mm. it. Um, and just as then they depart from their meeting, uh, he says, good evening, Mr. Ethan Lawrence Talbot. Mm. But, um, mm. you know, the quarry has been ran to its hole. Um, and no matter what Ethan says, you know, Ethan is, is quite quippy with uh, Inspector Rusk, uh, you know, trying to sort of divert and distract attention from himself. And he says, and the animal is most dangerous when he's ran to his, um, when he is cornered. But it, again, Inspector Rusk, it's that inevitability. It's that, cons- that it's that total pursuit. He goes, but nonetheless, it is cornered. Mm. Um, and, it, you know, no matter how many people we will lose, we will get the cornered animal. Yeah. And, yeah, I, I really like this <laughs> aspect. I like this Ethan's aspect. response to that as well, though, where he's, uh, the cornered animal is at its most dangerous. Yes. Uh, yeah, like but, but yeah. that's when he says then, but it's cornered yeah. nonetheless. Yeah. Um, he can, he's, it is this m- inevitability of pursuit that Inspector Rusk has. And I... I'm really enjoying that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love these two uh, together. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I really like um, Inspector Rust, the character. He's he's very interesting, uh, very driven. He yeah, he's very honest. He's got no hidden agenda. It seems he just wants to mm-hmm. find out what is happening. Um, but also there was that talk of um, he talks about his his phantom limb. Yeah, yeah. So there's an element to him that um, he's amenable to i guess i think ethan asked are you superstitious as well he there's mm-hmm. an element that he will uh, believe like the supernatural and things beyond uh mm-hmm. and and so i don't know he's just a very i don't know i like his character um his interactions with ethan are very good as well and that reveal of the talbot um if you can just photograph that picture uh the reaction of ethan <laughs> when he says when he yeah, says that exactly it's like oh gosh he's got him good i mean yes. if you know pictures you know, it, it spells it out on his face um so yeah, yeah. absolutely absolutely yeah inspector russ yeah. is really cool I, I have to say i love I, I do love that in, in inspector russ because there is that uh there's that line that's probably used in a lot of a lot of movies that are deal with the supernatural um that i think is evident within this character of, of mr rusk this idea that once you eliminate the uh the probable and all the other causes then the impossible is the likely only cause mm. for this and that looks like that's the point of view that russ comes from he will investigate and investigate and he will go down any path as long as the investigation takes him that way he will follow the path to whatever the conclusion is and he doesn't discount anything so his response to are you a superstitious man is not naturally yeah. so he's not necessarily exactly. superstitious but he will absolutely follow something if that's where the investigation takes exactly him. and i i think that that quote, you know, when all things possible have been eliminated, you can only look to the impossible mm-hmm. or the improbable. And um, I think that comes from Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. I think that's a Sherlock Holmes thing. And mm-hmm. I, I think, I think you're right. It, he, he's kind of the most pure character, mm-hmm. um, of how he views things and yeah. nothing is off limits. And also in fairness, he's the human character who is working for the law and possibly going to 
put a criminal yeah. behind bars. So that should give us all a little a little sense of happiness that we have somebody out there that's working on the side of normal humans yes. <laughs> going to investigate all of these tragic deaths and put a killer behind bars. So that's it's supposed to be a person that's yeah. um, that's allowing us to feel a bit more safe in our beds at night as well, because that's his purpose, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, I, I think just um, one final thing on that on Rusk. I, I love it because, as you say, he's so human. Um, and I think it was a few episodes before as well, his encounter with Ethan at the Waxworks. I just loved it how he's not this machine that is like three steps ahead of everyone and knows everything. Like he's working mm-hmm. things out himself. And I loved it when he went up to Ethan and he goes, I know you, I know you're involved. I don't know how. I just, mm-hmm. I just yeah. know you are. <laughs> and yeah, he's got yeah, no absolutely. evidence. He's got nothing to back himself, but, um, he just, he just follows his hunch. Um, so there's something quite, mm-hmm. um, likable about that nature of someone. Absolutely. And you, you mentioned before, uh, Ray about the look on Ethan's face. Well, I think as well, um, the, the look on Mr. Roper, uh, right at the start was, um, really, really good. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Roper's death at the beginning that was uh one of my notes mm-hmm. as well it was just that i think i don't know he it seems that with this being episode nine already i, I didn't know where they wanted to take this whether he would bleed in over to another season or his his ongoing mm. um battle to extradite ethan would would go further but his yeah. his death was very i found it very abrupt as well i mean it being in the mm, op- yeah. opener as well and and so his character his chapter just closes all of a sudden, even before we really get into the meat of this episode. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what your thoughts are. Do you think this was something that was um, thought out later on or had they, do you reckon that would have been, pl- it seemed unplanned. That's what I'm saying. I know, I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. I think uh, at the time, most TV shows were probably in the region of, uh, 22 episodes mm. um especially for a second season commission for a show like this so uh, first ep- first season was uh, was eight episodes which would be like a mini series kind of idea and then the second season got commissioned for 10 and it it feels like they were trying to put in this storyline of uh, Mr. Roper carrying over from the end of season 1 and it does feel like you didn't get enough of what exactly it meant it is setting up stuff for season three, but I don't think it was meant to. I think we were supposed to bring some of that into season two mm. um, with why Mr. Roper is chasing them down. Some more details about Ethan's past um, that it probably didn't fit in with the season. So you're right. The abrupt ending of Mr. Roper, while the scene itself yeah. is really brutal, really violent yeah. and really good, um, it does feel like it comes out of nowhere um, considering we waited for three episodes for him to wake up from his coma. Yes. yes. In the sixth episode, I think he confronts Ethan and tells him what his plan is going to be mm. and tells him that he has to leave the country. And then now in the, in the ninth episode, he's dead. So, um, so it feels like something much bigger was supposed to happen with the storyline. And maybe they just were expanding it to say, if you give us 16 episodes of the season, here's a piece we could explore more. Mm. Yeah. Um, but I'm kind of glad it, in a way that it didn't, because I think it would completely divert it from the main storyline of the main thrust of the show in this season. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm. I think it, it's abrupt his death, um, and I, I think that is um, almost down to this kind of um, like v- Vanessa's brutal here with her stabbing him repeatedly, and all, her and Ethan almost have this round robin <laughs> of stab <laughs> kick, stab kick, yes. um, which I thought was really kind of well. It's very well coordinated, but I mean, as kind of murder goes, um, I think with Vanessa coming at it from the fact that she's read this book, there's something maybe uh, a bit different about her. Um, but 
With Mr. Roper, I feel he, he, whilst they're not directly connected, his his connection is with Inspector Rusk. It is this hounding of the, the quarry to corner them, and he has cornered them, but unfortunately it's failed. Um, he isn't able to take him back to the US to his father. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, it's not spoilers as such, but we see Inspector Rusk being more successful in that matter. So I, I think it's a parallel of story of, of um, you know, the Pinkerton and the Bobby on the beat mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and that that's how I've always seen it. So it is abrupt and it's a shame to lose Mr. Roper because um, that face was really, really good mm-hmm. when he takes yeah. off um, the, the leather mask. Yeah. Uh, wow. That, and I, I like Vanessa's reaction to it, knowing that Ethan ha- had done that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, I suppose it would have taken a long time to, to construct that. But I, I did. I thought that was really nice. Uh, and I would like to see, have seen Mr. Roper for longer. And so in that sense, yeah, it, it is abrupt. It's a yeah. shame we lose him, certainly after the reveal of his, his wounds, mm-hmm. uh, from Ethan. Yeah. Um, and how, you you really get a sense that that disfigurement at the hands of Ethan uh, has changed the game for Mr. Roper. You know, he he feels it quite justifiable to threaten Vanessa uh, and the other people because it's like, you are a monster. You are out of control when you turn. So, um, yeah, I thought this was kind of interesting. His threat to Vanessa is that he'll have sex with her either either before or after he kills her. Like, no, exactly. That's it, monstrous. It's that's kind it. of gone into depravity. Yeah, yeah. But um and I think that's where it you know, he has been scarred by that encounter and who wouldn't Literally. be, quite frankly. And it contrasts with the cool level headedness of Inspector Rusk mm. effectively trying to do the same thing, which is bring um him to justice. Yeah, yeah. Um we're still a slightly unclear with Mr. Roper what bringing him back to daddy actually means um but yeah as you say derek it sets up um season three yeah yeah where we go on a holiday (laughs) (laughs) i was going to include a note in this episode uh that i had for the episode because there are some important things that go on with malcolm and his family and and things that are going on in that room but that's actually my note for episode 10 so i'm going to hold that back and we'll talk about that in the next episode that's it that's all of our discussion points about penny dreadful season two episode nine after this break, we'll be back with our discussion about Penny Dreadful Season 2, Episode 10, and They Were Enemies. Here's a message from Ray's other podcast, Last Sons of Crypto. I am Connor from the House of L. And I am Ray from the House of Zod. We are two of the many, many survivors of Krypton's destruction, and we have made our home in Australia, and dare I say have become Australians for better or worse. But we have also decided to read Superman comics, read Superman books, watch Superman shows, cartoons, movies, basically everything Superman, and from an Australian perspective as well. Whether you're a seasoned fan, like me, or whether you are coming in fresh, wide-eyed, and wanting to learn more like me, then this podcast is for you. Join us for our bi-weekly adventures available on all good podcast catches. But just search for Last Sons of Krypton, a Superman podcast. We'll be coming to you from Australia or some cosmic dimension, wherever we are that week. Up, 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 up and, and away! away.
Welcome back to the final episode of Penny Dreadful Season 2. We're talking about Episode 10, and they were enemies. I'm one of your hosts, Derek. Hello there, fellow Darklings. I'm one of your other hosts, John. And I am back, Ray, to talk about the finale for, for this awesome, awesome series. Excellent. Yes, I'm conscious that uh, that some of our listeners are listening to these episodes back to back, so they know exactly who we are. But just in case you, know, you uh, mix up some of our voices, you know, I know it doesn't sound very similar to Ray or John, uh, but just good to have our names out there at the beginning of the episode. Anyway, uh, I think we're going to jump straight into this one because it always feels like a bit of a milestone when you get to the end of a of uh, a show, a finale of a season, especially with a show written by one person like John Logan uh, writing every episode of the show. It feels like you're getting to the end of his vision the final chapter in this story in this book so it feels like a big milestone when we get to the end here uh, once again this episode is directed by brian kirk as i mentioned before he's uh, directed four episodes of the show so uh, so p- combining the two of them to close off the series is a, a good way to end it i think oh definitely this was a, a really a good finale uh, with that whole um the whole action around uh, madame carly's house mm-hmm well, John, do you want to tell us what they gave us with the summary for the final episode of season two of Penny Dreadful? Sure. At Madame Carly's house, it's left to Vanessa to fight her and her master. Sir Malcolm and Victor Frankenstein are immobilized by hallucinations where those they have wronged torment them. Ethan, for his part, is still under the effect of the full moon. And elsewhere, John Clare learns the new rules now that he has been imprisoned in the cellar at Putney's Wax Museum. Dorian and Lily are prepared to take on the world. They certainly are. Yes, they are. Absolutely. Yeah. Lots of stuff happened in this finale episode. The way we've been talking about these episodes, because it's a rewatch podcast, we've been picking out one point that we wanted to talk about about each episode. I found this really difficult because there's one big thing that's happening in the center of the episode, but loads of other stuff going on around uh, around all of the characters and cl- closing out their season two uh, of the show. I think I had a question when we were going through season one of the show as to when it got renewed and when people were waiting. It actually got renewed four episodes into season one that there was going oh. to be a season two. So they did lay out some groundwork in season one for the second season. This feels more like an ending at the end of season mm. two. It feels like an ending for the characters where you may never see them again. Now, I think, again, they knew there was going to be a season three by the time it all had aired. But it does feel like they're closing it off to say goodbye to everybody. So it does feel like much more filmic in some ways. and It feels much more like uh, the end credits roll and you may not see them again for three or four years for the next season to come out. So uh, so difficult to pick a big moment, but each of us has. Uh, Ray, do you want to kick us off with your big moment? Because I think you've got the major moment from the episode. Yeah, I took it. I um, I just want to say like, Eva Green, uh, Vanessa, she can look so beautiful, uh, but she can always look, also look very scary. Uh, and Absolutely. I loved this scene where she, she basically has a, a conversation with, with Lucifer, the devil through the doll. And, um, mm-hmm. and it's more of a, a negotiation and, a, um, I guess a temptation from the, from the devil um, to Vanessa to mm-hmm. to claim her soul. Um, what I found impactful for this was was that she rejects the devil and what she says when she does it. Uh, again, it, it just harks yeah. back to my uh, initial impressions of her being this really this powerhouse and and something that's beyond mm-hmm. all these other great powers. So basically, 
the devil is trying to claim a soul and, and it comes down to a kiss and all you have to do is kiss the doll and, and everything's, you know, mm-hmm. hunky dory. <laughs> I get what I want and, uh, <laughs> and you get a life. Yeah. She actually sees a life with Ethan. Um, these, these possibilities, mm-hmm. all these temptations and she rejects it. And, um, and she says something like, you know, uh, I reject you. What makes you think that I want a normal life in the, in the, um, in the first place, you know, this is who I am. Mm-hmm. And I think that just yeah, resonated yeah. a lot. Uh, it, it kind of shows the, um, the amount of thought that she's put into it and, and the depths of where she thinks she is with the, basically she mm-hmm. can't go back and she's, yeah. she's just damned anyway. Um, so yeah. yeah, I love this turn of fate and she just stands up to this, uh, to the devil and she, she breaks him literally, um, the face. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, right through the face <laughs> yeah, of the absolutely. scorpions pouring out from the inside as well. It's so, so interesting. And, you know, the, the layering of this show from John Logan, uh, right back from the, um, the possession back in, uh, in episode eight of season one, this, comes back up again from uh, from Vanessa where she says it's my soul you can't take it unless mm. I give it willingly you have to uh, you have to take it from me but it's mine and that will always be mine no matter what you say to me I will not make the choice to transfer this over it's something that's echoed right the way, right the way back to then uh, and also that she has changed quite significantly throughout this series we've seen the build up of knowledge within the ma- the magic arts that she used the dark arts that she's used the murder that she's done uh, where um, Ethan spurned her and effectively said, you can never come back from this. This is all playing into where she is. You know, as she says, she couldn't possibly go and be a housewife at home sitting with the two kids and Ethan. That's not where her life is destined to go mm. now. Uh, she's taken a different path already. So uh, it, it's fantastic. And wow, that Verbus Diablo uh, yeah. screaming match between the two oh, of them. It's just, it's coming so guttural from yeah. inside uh, Eva Green. It's, it really does feel like the devil speaking through her at moments that she's just does a fantastic job. Such a, such a powerful scene of the two of them screaming at each other, uh, which is both of, both played by Eva Green, yes. of course, um, where she plays the devil and uh, the devil through the ventriloquist doll. Um, I'm presuming if a ventriloquist doll uh, asked you to kiss it, John, and you would get your <laughs> wildest dreams, you would also reject that too. Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah, let's just say, you know, this thing talks, okay? <laughs> um, that was freaky enough for mm. me, let alone where I just wondered whether this wooden tongue was going to come out <laughs> of the doll uh, as the, the, they're kind of leaning in. Uh, for the kiss uh, before they have the verbis diablo off i suppose mm-hmm. um i thought uh i thought the doll was it's just so well done um again some of the extras from the the blu-ray shows how they made this where they actually did a full scale uh mold of vanessa or eva green i should say uh, and then just scaled it down uh within proportion uh to this doll and that's why it looks so absolutely like and i think that's what makes it so uh, freaky Uh, but i I love the fact that it talks whilst also hating that at the same time (laughs) um and you know it refers to vanessa as amonette here um and you know makes the point that the moment you spoke the verbus diablo you extended your powers to kill and and i think sort of just the, it makes sense with um, Mr. Roper, as I suppose, from the previous episode uh, as well, why she was able to maybe change in that way. But um, 
yeah, then that contrast with the fact that Lucifer here is really banking on what he describes as um, an old dream, that that dream is for her to be normal mm-hmm. and and hence going to that very bright and white uh, temptation of Lucifer uh, to be married with Ethan uh, with kids um, and uh, I suppose talk endlessly about hippopotamuses um, and <laughs> stuff like that. That sounded really like you said Lucifer was going to get married to Ethan with kids. <laughs> you mean Vanessa's Vanessa. Vanessa, yeah, exactly. <laughs> to Vanessa. I'm sure Lucifer's tempted by Ethan as <laughs> we all are, um, to be honest. But uh, yes, and and then just the that kind of reverse because... Like Lucifer makes the point, you know, you have to take it willingly. Um, he feels that this temptation is the one that she isn't going to be able to resist. Um, you know, he's not going to crawl around on his hands and knees begging for uh, loyalty. It has to be given uh, willingly. Um, and uh, then you, he gets effectively uh, that knockback. Um, as you say, Ray, mm-hmm. she goes, I know who I am. And this idea that she doesn't want to be normal, you know, that he he's kind of playing played the wrong deck here as Lucifer and that that temptation of normality is not something that she uh, maybe any longer wants and she's happy to be this 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 different um oddity or or different person Mm. um and so I I, yeah just the whole thing of the doll fracturing Mm. and all the um the scorpions sort of rushing out and then the as Madame Carly hasn't delivered on her mm, promise yes, to Lucifer, right. that she begins to to age uh, at the same time where Hecate kind of unleashes her plan and the the Wolf of God, um, and oh my goodness, what um, what a great kind of moment where the throat is ripped uh, from Madame Carly, and there is a scene of her still lying. On the floor later on, where you can see right down her, her windpipe. Um, I think she had poached eggs for breakfast, <laughs> from what I could see, uh, down down her esophagus uh, to her stomach, because that is like a proper uh, clean throat rip. Um, I I thought that was awesome. The uh, kind of uh, constructed, um, and of course that breaks the spell. Uh, for Victor and Malcolm, uh, at the same time, mm-hmm. which is, uh, which is beneficial for them, I suppose. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. When Ethan comes in and slices her throat, it doesn't seem that bad <laughs> to begin with. But then you, as you mm-hmm. say, John, you get that glorious shot at the end where she's just lying there and she's fully decapitated. And yeah, full, full credit to the, uh, the props and special effects department, um, or the makeup or mm-hmm. whoever does it. It's, um, really, um, really detailed. Uh, but I love it. it really yeah. Is, it? Yeah. It's like most of her throat is gone. Yeah. It's <laughs> you really see down. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And, sp- and speaking of, of credit to the people involved in this show, like this scene, you know, a, a doll talking to mm. your major character as your finale. How bad could this yes. have gone? Like, I, I mean, how poorly could it have come across on screen if not in the hands of these very talented people that worked on the show? Because, you know, a doll talking to a person as uh, being embodied by the devil. I think we've had that in other shows. I remember in Buffy, they had the ventriloquist dummy possessed by a demon oh, yeah. before. It just doesn't come across as terrifying as this. I think just the creation of the doll of Vanessa in itself being as creepy as it is, is a great touch. But 
it must be in the performance of Eva Green um, and the writing of the episode and the filming of this particular scene as how terrifying it comes across because yeah. it's it's so good as a finale. I think it's the construction of it as well. I mean, you know, Buffy didn't show babies being kind of kidnapped, <laughs> sliced and diced, and then sort of hearts sort of being put in. Like, you know, that there is a there's a genuine sort of terror mm. around uh, not only the practice of, of um, the enchantments and, and the voodoo element to it, yeah. but just how these fetishes are uh, are created mm-hmm. that has been built up. So in that moment, you know what's gone into creating this, you know, through the attack on the house, getting the locket of her, having the the baby um, yeah. kidnapped uh, and effectively um, pillaged of, you know, its its heart. Um, so it, 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 it it's that element of it uh as well that you know it, it's a fitting vehicle i suppose for for lucifer that such depravity uh allows him to exist on the 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 plane of earth mm-hmm. uh to come out from hell yeah. uh so it, it it it's that yeah I'm glad Buffy didn't do that. <laughs> um, can I just bounce some thoughts? And what did you think of those scorpions coming out of the out of the doll? Um, was that mm. um, a manifestation of Lucifer, or was that something that was part of Vanessa? Because she, I was just trying to understand it. Like, as I, I get mm. the symbolism, obviously, because of Vanessa's uh, scorpion, little scorpion uh, reference, and uh, but mm. she absorbs one of them. Um, and, yeah, um, I don't know, cool. what are your thoughts on just all the, the spewing of, of scorpions out of the doll? What did it mean? Yeah, I, I felt like it is her power okay. that that's what she effectively placed inside of this doll to destroy right. it from the inside out, <sighs> almost. Yeah. That's yeah. the spell that she's doing, I yeah. think. Yeah. Um, but you're right, it, it's not 100% clear as to what it is, but I just feel because that's been her, the manifestation mm-hmm. of her protection has always been the, the scorpion, that it's something coming from her. Uh, one of the other things I was also interested in in that scene as well, I, I think you mentioned it, John, that she's referred to as Amonette by Amon Ra, by, uh, by this, this creature. Um, and it's not, it, it's, I'm trying to work out in my head, does that mean that she is the reincarnation of this deity for these centuries like millennia i think uh, back from when Amon, amonet and amon ra were, were ruling over the egyptians um but i'm not sure whether that's very clear mm. or is she just vanessa and he's projecting that he wishes she was amonet his uh, eternal partner i'm not sure so i i took this that she's not amonet but that's how he refers to her because you have that um you have that moment from mr lyle talking about the women that have been the in this role mm-hmm. from different cultures um of which amonet is from the egyptian culture but he he talks about others from the the bible yes. from um from uh, persian culture from from greek culture the, the the these women that have been destined and so in a sense this is the victorian mm-hmm. culture of that and and what lucifer is recognizing is that um that vanessa is able to contain and in in effect control evil yeah. here so it's someone that represents yes. amonet is what he's attracted to yes. not necessarily that Amonet is passing. No, exactly. Woman as, the, as the women die. Yeah. Okay. So that each culture and at each moment in time, there is this 
type of person and they are spoken about and and so in, in this modern world it's Vanessa, right. i suppose that has been chosen and i think to your point ray the scorpions coming out of the doll is in effect her whatever enchantment or or whatever words from the verbus diablo is a manifestation in in breaking lucifer's power here um in in this world of of, of men and women um because uh yeah so the scorpion is seen as this protector mm. on the journey to the afterworld right. or to death whether the spirit or or the and um, the internal organs from egyptian culture so this is a protective kind of symbol as mm. as as we've seen um and that melding into a hand which i thought was just really mm. cool uh, is kind of just um I suppose making that point again that they're becoming one. This, this um, legend of the scorpion and Vanessa. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, effectively, she's leveled up here. Mm-hmm. Um, she's she's gone all powerful. Um, she can take on the big boss. Um, so I think that's where I kind of took all the scorpions kind of coming out was a manifestation of her enchantment. Yeah, I mean that makes the most sense as well. One little thing that was just kind of itching at me was I think I guess a couple of episodes ago. Evelyn Poole produces a scorpion to Sir Malcolm as well. So mm-hmm. um, I'd always associated the scorpions with Vanessa, but Evelyn Poole's given it to Malcolm, and it seems to have some sort of um, malevolent intent because it's a precursor to him uh, finding his his demons. You know, she says, oh, you know. That's you know. right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. But yeah. She, Evelyn Poole, when she – on unfolds her hand and puts it on his knee she says i will leave you with your little scorpion so she's saying this is vanessa oh, okay right um and she so she goes be careful uh, of her because she has a sting or uh, okay. they you know there is the sting mm-hmm. like the sting of your memories and then yeah, yeah. Right. q okay. malcolm gets all his uh coffins all at once yes. um and and the old zombie the the zombie murrays uh come to for a family reunion. Can you imagine if that happened? Well, cute. Christmas might. dinner. <laughs> the, the, the zombie Harrisons and O'Neills. Oh, the... It's bad enough having all the Harrisons and O'Neills. I can't imagine the zombie versions of all of my family being together as well. At least they won't eat much. Exactly, yeah. You don't have to shop <laughs> that much. So. <laughs> exactly. You just have one chicken for everybody yeah. rather than a massive turkey. Yeah. Uh, it's raw chicken as well. You don't even have to cook it. <laughs> no, the chicken would be for us, John, because we're not the zombies. Okay, yeah, zombies don't eat chicken, as far as I know. <laughs> um, cue my major moment from the episode because mine is about uh, about Victor and Malcolm um, being confronted, I suppose, by uh, by their own demons uh, who've been brought back to life in this room. I think this scene is absolutely terrifying and so well written i really love as you have both sides you have the family you have uh, malcolm's wife and children trying to uh, force him to see what he's done in his life he led to peter's death uh, his son while they were while they were away by not um protecting him from the elements but not protecting him from what was what was going to happen to him in south africa you have his daughter who he shot in the head effectively as she says but even before that he allowed her to get taken by uh by the by the creatures by the vampires and then his wife arrives and his wife effectively was left on her own to deal with the abuse of 
Evelyn Poole, someone that was just trying to win Malcolm, so nothing to do with his wife at all. She wasn't responsible for it. And that moment of uh, her confronting Malcolm and then raising her neck slightly as blood drips from her cut throat uh, is terrifying. Mm. It's absolutely scary. Um, And then it cuts to the other side of the room with Victor going through his hallucinations of all of his children, the return of Proteus we have here, the return of of Lily and uh, and John Clare or Caliban, all coming back to him saying, we are your children, you created us. Um, Caliban saying, I'm your brother, I'm the one that has has experienced everything you've experienced. Um, Lily effectively saying, I'm, I'm your master almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Proteus saying, I'm your son, you are my father. Um, but what I love about it is you can almost understand why both of these characters, Malcolm and Victor, go to take their own lives. They are convinced that this is their time. They're convinced that they should join their, their versions of their families. Just all it takes is just one slash, one shot to, to your head with a gun. And then you can be with us forever. You can almost see how they're being pushed over the edge into taking their own lives. And it does, I think, lead to the later scenes with, uh, with, Victor going to visit Lily and trying to reconnect with her. And then when he's shunned, our final scene with Victor is then him shooting up morphine into his fingers. Mm. Uh, he's now possibly not going to survive into season three because yeah. he's been rejected by the family that this vision is effectively saying his family want him back and want him to die and be reborn into them. And while he tries to reconnect with them, they reject him again. So uh, it seems like he's lost everything by the end of the series. So uh, so overall, that whole uh, section between Victor and Malcolm being approached by by those family connections and effectively going to suicide, I think is just is just a really interesting way to close out their stories for for this season. It's a it's scary and and creepy and so well done. Definitely. And great to see Proteus back because yeah. he was a great was character good. in those two episodes. Yeah, I, I was really pleased they brought uh, Proteus back in, into that mix, into that torment for, for Victor. Mm. Um, because I, I feel that's almost maybe the one that might torment him the most, mm-hmm. given um, he seemed to have positive feelings towards him as yeah. opposed to like like running as far away as he could from uh his his first creation to begin with and i suppose his sense of jealousy now with with lily and dorian Mm -hmm. but um but i love i love that he he says to the creature it's you that killed him i didn't kill him and and uh caliban goes well you made me and i killed him so you did kill him basically so it's back on you victor Um, still the one that did all this yeah absolutely i I think what i really like about these scenes is just that duality the the reflection of victor into malcolm and and malcolm into victor because you you, there's been a lot of those father-son conversations between these two and so for then these two to be experiencing this horror show of their past coming to haunt them um and and you you get the ref that sort of reflection of of you know um of malcolm's family saying you know one last great adventure into the unknown to join the great explorers so that he can be at peace Uh, and you have lily um 
Proteus and Caliban saying one last experiment, Father, uh, to join the poets, um, which I think, again, to be at peace. It's really good. Um, I, I, I love how, um, you know, how will they atone? And both of them are this. How How is Malcolm going to atone? How is Victor going to atone? Um, and I do love Gladys um, saying the final tombstone on the hill yes. to Sir Malcolm. Um, I, I love this actress playing yeah, Gladys because again just a small role but I think she really brings um this sense of just abandonment from from Malcolm and how she played you know in previous episodes being um uh, harrowed by Evelyn Poole with the, the the brain acupuncture uh in in her fetish doll yeah. um I, I think she's been really good and I, I think the delivery of that line by her was just really uh really good yeah I mean the the parallels yeah. as you say John there between Sir Malcolm and, and Victor essentially um, with family um and Victor's Victor's children um you know and and Lily can argue the fact that she's uh, a bit more than that or or um John Clare says, I'm your brother. So there is that, um, that responsibility that both, uh, Victor and Sir Malcolm have on their family. Uh, yeah, I love that parallel as well. Um, seeing Proteus, as you, as you mentioned, uh, do you guys get that feeling as well? I love it when you, when you're so drawn into a scene, right? And, and these characters are apparitions, right? They're hallucinations. Mm-hmm. And you kind of think, okay, this is, so this is just, um, uh, you know, Sir Malcolm and Victor in this scene, and these are just appar- apparitions. But in reality, th- these actors are actually acting in this episode as well. I don't, it's a weird thought. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever yeah. get that kind of thought. It's like, um, <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. Like they're they're acting different versions of mm. themselves. They're acting Victor's version of what he would think they're like. So, um, so it's it's not. It's also a different. Yes version of what billy piper has been playing in lily for the last uh last two seasons it's a different version of what uh rory kinnear has been playing the creature as because now he's playing the creature as how victor sees him in his mind you're absolutely mm-hmm. right and same thing with malcolm's family the the actors playing his family are playing the fears up from what malcolm would be seeing if they had the opportunity to speak again so uh yeah i, I love these scenes and it's it's it is fascinating to see how they how they perceive their failures i suppose because that's their big issue those those two characters is they failed everybody around them and that's uh and seeing them tear their brains apart i suppose uh is is how scary this this scene played out yeah really really good and it's also again it's also that great temptation from from lucifer the devil as well with this um Mm -hmm. driving them to suicide and that's the intent obviously but but kind of um sugarcoating it with the idea of you know join us you can you know trying to fool um so malcolm and victor and i love this way that um it's not like it's never been done before but i just love the way that um, the tactics of lucifer and the devil is a lot more um kind of underhanded rather than just the brute force of it's just an evil being that um say Maybe in season one is just about the physicality and the attacking and, and just the terror. Mm. This devil is a lot more conniving and um, is trying all yeah. these things, and he does it with Vanessa as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, yeah, I completely agree. I yeah. think um, it is just really well done, yeah. and as you said, the Ray. Um, yeah, yeah. So that was my major point uh, from this episode of the season, just how and, and how we end Victor's story at the end of season two. I don't know if there's a season three, whether Victor Frankenstein 
would appear back in it or whether somebody's just going to find his body somewhere. Yeah, well, there's uh, definitely really. the sense that he's overdosing here. And um, just to say, I, I did like the touch of him injecting between his fingers oh, um, yeah. because he's effectively destroyed any other major sort of vein or artery that he can uh, do it to mm-hmm. um, for sure. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, certainly following his memento mori with his, with his creatures and that final encounter with Lily and Dorian, uh, I'm not surprised, but he probably goes that way actually. Um, Cause even we have that nice, sort of intimate moment with him and, and Sir Malcolm as well mm-hmm. um, in, in Sir Malcolm's study. But uh, I'm, I'm hoping that he, um, it's not fatal that he just wakes up with um, a, a, a new spur to probably, probably create another one. You know what he's like. <laughs> he's a bit obsessive. Um, maybe, another maybe one. Of, be yeah. Maybe this one will be better um, as he just keeps plunking them out. But I mean, ultimately Lily, um, does want him yes. you know as well and i suppose this is coming to my um my point which uh yeah i i get the lord of the rings return of the king moment with all these <laughs> endings for everyone mm-hmm. and dare i say it, everyone does get an ending uh, i've called it triple a just uh to 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 give it some structure because uh we do see a lot of the characters in their ending leaving on ships for various places of mm-hmm. which one is africa one is america and it seems like one is the arctic um i i did like caliban's one that he he because he says um he's leaving for a desolate shore to to vanessa in in the colorific arches underneath the the railway line um and i did like that description it immediately made me feel like he was referencing the island of dr moreau and that he was going to this shore um of this island filled with creations from the mind of a mad scientist Mm -hmm. in this case dr moreau but obviously him coming from victor um and uh going to find the monsters yeah finding those monsters so um but but it's not it's not that kind of tropical island he's he's off to the arctic this desolate shore of of isolation and even seeing that ship i didn't catch the name of the ship but i i immediately thought of hms uh terror which is a great name for a a royal navy ship that tried to find the northwest passage around the arctic north of canada and effectively got lost and you know, that, those great kind of superstition moments but it also um, turned into an absolutely terrifying tv show as well it did yeah exactly um god the victorians were good at kind of creepiness um and i i, I like this he, he's kind of going off to be alone for a while he's kind of spurned lily he's seemingly not taking up her her offer mm-hmm. to join them uh and to conquer uh so i thought that was uh really nice i liked um sir malcolm i suppose in a sense has come at, to peace with himself here um he you know he he's and i i like the fact that it's connected in, in with both his family but also some some as mm-hmm. well um some is really really dead here um yeah. absolutely and th- there's a moment where I, which i really liked actually um that sir malcolm touches uh his forehead and closes his eyes um and uh, i thought that was really nicely done by timothy dalton uh there was real kind of emotion there uh for Mm. for me and you know he he's kind of on a twofold mission in traveling to africa to 
try and put his past behind him and to be uh, true to his family uh, and Sembene, which is to return Sembene to Africa, um, but also to collect his his son Peter from the shores uh, of Lake Tanganyika. Uh, uh, but, it, yeah, he's, he's talked about that mission a few yeah. times. He wanted to bring Ethan along with him and everybody was saying it was just a fancy. He wasn't going to do it at all. So it does feel like he is, he's now about to accomplish that mission, about to go to South Africa and, and collect the... Uh, the body of his son but is there anybody that sir malcolm is even tangentially connected to that's still alive like even you know obviously evelyn has lost her head in this episode <laughs> vanessa is the only as well one. vanessa yeah. yeah vanessa's the only one and she's turned to darkness effectively she's you know she's kind of saying in this episode she's rejecting the devil because she's now more powerful than that effectively so um I'm, yeah, I don't really want to be friends with Malcolm. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, for sure. Um, I think, yeah, it's only Vanessa. And I suppose for Vanessa's ending, she's really left at, at Sir Malcolm's home here. Um, I, do, I do like the... She, she says, I've ran from the darkness for so long only to find more darkness. Um, and the, it seemingly that, that beautiful... Um, normal life of her and Ethan is there's no hope for uh, at least um, for Vanessa and uh, in in terms of their story they truly are kind of cleaved away from one another here because um, Ethan is on a boat uh, destined for North America mm-hmm. um, or America to keep the A theme going <laughs> and um, and I really like this you know that he hands himself in ultimately mm-hmm. to the police. He confesses his crime to Inspector Rusk. He, he believes he's going to have the, the quick, uh, retribution of, of the, of the rope, uh, and not the long drawn out guilt. Mm-hmm. I think that Inspector Rusk talked about previously. Um, oh, but- massive, massive applause to, uh, to Inspector Rusk. Oh, that's all very nice, Ethan, yeah. that you've come to, uh, to turn yourself <laughs> yeah, exactly. in. But you're already being recalled to yeah. America. Yeah. <laughs> and Warren just came in today. Sorry, I didn't get the chance to tell you before you spilled your guts <laughs> and told me all of the horrible yeah. things you did. But I did like hearing it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Ethan says, make it quick. He, he thinks this is his way out. Yeah. This is, um, effectively a suicide yes. did, uh, mm-hmm. for, for Ethan. Um, and he's not going to be given that satisfaction. Uh, and Inspector Rusk is like, you know, there will be no hanging. His the extradition orders. You're you're going home to America, um, and so we see him caged as well, like an animal on the ship. So again, this is very much as well going to feed into um, the third season, where we we get to travel uh, away from Victorian London to the the world of you know the, this um this new country that is expanding westwards yeah. uh, across um uh, north america yeah. so that that that's a really kind of interesting yeah. uh, ending as well and then i suppose we've touched on victor as well his, his yeah. final ending as well yeah. already yeah. it's good that you point out that he's trapped like a caged animal here because you presume being on a ship to america you know a couple of weeks across the ocean he'd be in the brig he'd be in you know a normal prison on board the ship but he is he's crouched down on the floor as they're all staring at him in this cage that would be for a wild animal so um so yeah it, it, it does feel like he's being dragged off uh to the circus to another country or something yeah. you know it's it's a, a pretty brutal way for for his story to end but really good that uh, inspector rusk got his yeah. man as well I thought yeah that was a, a really good yeah story. it was really good um 
yeah, I was very satisfied with um, Inspector Rusk's. Uh, you can see the glee that he had when, yeah. um, when he, um, you know, rejected what Ethan wanted to be done to him, uh, and. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's a fate worse than death for Ethan. This extradition back to yeah. America. So, I know it's a little, little, uh, you know, cheeky, but I did like that from Inspector Rusk. Um, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I just want to take it yeah. back, also, John, to because um, you're talking about um, this relationship with Vanessa and Ethan, and and this uh, this tragedy that that life will never happen as well. Um, I found this conversation that Vanessa has, final conversation she has with John Clare, um, in that oh, area. Yeah. Oh, so, so sad. It's so tragic as well, because essentially they're both, they're both sad. I mean, previous times we see them, they're quite happy. Vanessa's so affectionate and, and comforting towards him, but now both of them are quite yeah. miserable and they're both coming off very, very bad. Um, events that have just occurred. Uh, and there's even a point where John wants to, uh, as you say, he wants to go away, he wants to flee, but there's a final little spark in him going, why don't you join me, you know, because he can recognise yeah. this kindred spirit um, in Vanessa. Unfortunately, yeah. she rejects that as well because she's got her own things going on, and I find it just so tragic because these two beings are so... They play off each other so well, and they they work so well together. Um, but they can't mm. they can't have a relationship together. Um, and no. I, I just find it yeah, it was a very emotional, very well done scene. And I think the basis of why they probably tried to get Vanessa and um, and John uh, in like with dialogue um, in the season in season three. For the season yeah. to come because they just they just act so well together um brilliant actors both Absolutely. of them yeah. yeah they're really good i mean that's the thing yeah it's it's where i suppose we also get that insight from vanessa where she says i've lost god i've lost my immortal self it's that um you know i i do feel like in in some respects when we leave vanessa um after john Clare, it's like she's almost taking on a um professor van helsing role it's it's that she has taken on evil but it's almost to turn it back on on itself and mm. uh, she's it's like she is this vampire hunter but more than that yeah. it's it's just for evil and um, i think maybe it is the idea that she knows that there is one more to deal with which is the brother cast out onto earth but um mm-hmm. Although I thought it was quite um, evocative that her final moment in the episode ties back to the first episode of season one, where we saw her praying at the crucifix at the beginning of season one, and now she's taking it down off the wall and throwing it in the fire. Um, She's effectively cutting ties with her old self, cutting ties with God. Um, You know, it's it's massive change for this character, Vanessa. I do like that line when she's talking to Jean-Claire, where she... Uh, where she says to him, I think you're the most human man yeah, I've ever known. Yeah. And he's saying to her, no matter how far away you walk from God, he's waiting ahead. I think those are uh, beautiful touches between those two mm. characters, giving solace to each other in some ways. But she can't really go further from God than taking the crucifix off the wall and burning it. Like That seems yeah. like a massive choice for, for the character. But it's almost you can return. Like mm. it's it, She's had to imbue herself um, with the, the dark magic and so on from, mm. from that book left by Joan Clayson. But he's saying he will always 
be ready to take you back Absolutely. if you, I suppose, repent. Um, I I, yeah, it's interesting. And I suppose it will play out in, in season three. And I, But I like that it hangs a bit with Vanessa mm. because she has always been the most mysterious, yeah. Uh, yeah. the most difficult to, to read. Um, I even like that Mr. Lyle gets a little moment with Victor as well, just... Again, it's Lord of the Rings, uh, Return of the King mm-hmm. endings here. We've got to go through literally everyone. Um, dare <laughs> the I fellowship say, is broken. Yes. Dare I say it, they go into the West as well. But there we go. Um, and uh, he gets that moment where it's almost like, well, we're the two kind of <laughs> most normal, if they can be described as that. But, you know, that offer of friendship between the two that Mr. Lyle says, you can always come to me as a friend. Um, to Victor. You know, yeah. to, to Victor in that moment. Um, I just, I, I like that it was underlined because we did mention before about um, Mr. Lyle hiding his uh, his Jewish practices in the basement when he was preparing for the attack from the nightcomers. And I do like that it's called out in this episode that, yeah. that Mr. Lyle needs to protect that he is Jewish um, within society in the Victorian era because it was, it was something that uh, would have been held against him. And I like that he has that connection with Victor to say, just please keep this secret because I can't have this known about me because we weren't sure whether we were just reading the scene right the last time it happened, whether it was just part of the ritual that he was doing that he needs to be away from people or whether he was keeping this other secret about himself. Uh, So I I just thought it was important to to underline it in case we were getting it wrong last time. So, uh, So we weren't. That's good. Yeah. Um, so, and even with Dorian and Lily, um, they are, I suppose, bloody dancing again. Oh. Uh, that, that mm. hallway or that ballroom has seen a lot of blood, mm-hmm. but, um, I love the fact here. Um, and part of the reason why Victor does try and, uh, maybe kill himself is that this encounter where, you know, he, he goes and goes to kill Lily and, and Dorian with a bullet for each of them. Mm. Uh, but they are the immortals and they just stand there and kind of look at him and, you know, almost pretend that he's not there. They're discussing him whilst ignoring him about whether they should finish him off now or leave it to mm. later. Or it's the foot and the ant, you know, do you crush it, um, I suppose. And that's the kind of feeling that you get here uh, with them. I love the fact that she keeps him she doesn't kill him now because he it will be of use in creating i suppose what her army of mm-hmm. of dead of the dead uh, or of the reborn um but the great visual of this is that all the while they're discussing it the camera pans back and this the shot mm. that uh, Victor has inflicted on the both of them uh, is beginning to materialize on their back, you know, as the bullet wound has gone through and you have the blood streaking down the white tailcoats of Dorian and the white um, trail of, of Lily um, as then they dance and it's all just pouring out of them, their blood. So uh, what a fantastically uh, horrific image uh, to be left with, you know, these two in pure white, yeah. um, but, bloody and and red stained yeah i guess that portrait is going to take another battering (laughs) (laughs) the the portraits probably they're going guns oh my goodness you know like can you imagine when the machine gun comes in that portrait is just like gonna oh no (laughs) 
of a grenade. I thought uh, Victor was, when I first watched this, I thought he was dead for all money. I mean, I couldn't see how he was going to get out of this. These two immensely powerful beings, immensely evil, uh, and then just talking in front of him. You know, should we just kill him now? I just, I was expecting a a Mm -hmm. short, short, quick, sharp, just like snap of a neck or something. Um, so kind of glad yeah. that he did, um, survive it. But it, it, I mean, poor Victor, he's, he's at the total pits. I mean, and now he's, um, you know, at the whim yeah. of Lily, expected to make an army of immortals and, uh, he's been yeah. spurned by her. He's, he's, I'm assuming one and only chance at love has been, utterly demolished um you know mm-hmm. so yeah you got to feel for victor but it was a very cool scene and yeah visually john the, the blood and the white um was this really mm-hmm. and it's the first time we've actually seen i guess um um dorian in his immortal state i mean he's had his ear bitten off mm-hmm. um he's you know talked about stuff that's happened to him but it's the first time we actually see physically him being shot and him just standing up and not not really worried at all um absolutely yeah, yeah. she's brought that power out in him really yeah that's what it seems like from from lily that she's really brought that confidence out in him that no matter what happens i'm gonna live through it mm. so uh yeah it, it's like he's a terrifying character when you think of his version of immortality it's not that he just lives forever as a young uh, as a young man it looks like he can survive anything as yeah. well so there's there's something different about that it means he doesn't have to be even as protective as he has been in the past of himself um or or his body and putting himself into certain situations you know maybe he's going to go skydiving with a parachute <laughs> next time you know <laughs> because if he can survive <laughs> that then he can survive anything, yeah, absolutely you know? and so that's what it kind of feels like but um but loads of stuff in this yeah. episode i know is there any other notes that we haven't talked about that we uh, that we want to mention i'll just jump in with one mm-hmm. because uh, a favorite moment for uh, for mr lyle in this episode as he uh, as he kills oh, uh, yeah. one of the nightcomers and says never under- <laughs> underestimate the power of a queen with lovely hair my dear <laughs> <laughs> great mr lyle excellent moment. stuff that's as close as Love as that. close as you're going to get to a, a hollywood kind of one-liner you know <laughs> absolutely <laughs> yeah <laughs> although i would watch his adventures uh, taking out uh, witches all across the world absolutely he, uh, delivered lines like that. skipping along on his his bed of of lavender <laughs> with his two fishes um for sure um i like hecate um you know burns the house down leaves a, a crispy carly yeah, she uh, does. there uh, but takes the the old uh takes the implements mm. in order to continue her mother's fetish toolbox yeah um Okay. Yeah, I just yeah. like uh, the little note. I, I love the classic look of the werewolf or the, the lupus day. Um, not mm-hmm. a full blown mm. wolf, or, you know, he's got that yeah. kind of, I don't know, very human like face. Um, he's always had the long hair, I guess, but, um, mm-hmm. yeah, very kind of classic look. Uh, so yeah, really enjoyed that. Yeah. They did a really good job, but it really does feel like, uh, like a much, I'm trying to think the kind of Hollywood uh, Universal Monsters, mm, wasn't yes. it? That, that's the version of of the the werewolf we have here. Yeah, yeah I think I think he looks cool. He does. Like, you know, it's uh, I've mentioned I've mentioned a number of times that there are terrible ways of doing a werewolf uh, on screen. There there have been many examples of it, and this what they did with this version is scary when he opens up and and shows how wide his mouth is with all the teeth inside as he's about to tear into his victims. I think that's a good scary version of it. But the design otherwise is also really really good. Mm. So yeah, yeah, really enjoyed it. 
Um, yeah, I just have one final note. Uh, I, I do like, uh, that in the same way as Kellogg's Rice Krispies, the Putney <laughs> family does go snap, crackle and pop. Um, <laughs> with the retribution of, uh, Caliban. Well, um, I thought that was just not to say that, you know, I should, uh, sort of, welcome this kind of behavior but it, it felt like retribution for caliban where he just simply takes the the steel door off its hinges mm. um and uh yes it is a snap of mrs putney's neck a, a crackle and pop to of uh mr putney yeah. against the archway and <laughs> yeah. um, but he leaves lavinia uh to effectively feel her way around in the darkness mm-hmm. uh and uh you hear her screaming um uh, as he leaves the the putney family waxworks yeah. um so it felt like justice yeah. here for for Caliban, even though it was uh, a vengeance, I suppose. Um, you know, it, you have Mister Putney; they're all kind of puffed up with his new suit, offering him this deal, um, and yet he's a bit like the Pirates of the Caribbean. He's done the hinges on the cell uh, incorrectly, <laughs> um, so he can just lift them off and escape. Well, I think that's just the power. I think he was just waiting for his moment. But there was definitely, as the as he kind of calls them closer to give more information about the deal that the Putneys have for John Clare, I was just expecting him to grab the two of them through the bars and yes, kill them because so of that, yeah, and smack well. them off the bars. But as he gets out and just snaps the neck of Mrs. Putney and then uh. repeatedly smashes the face of Mr. Putney against the wall yeah. until he dies. It, it's as brutal as it needs to be for what these people are doing. And fair dues to uh, to John Logan for writing a couple of lines for Lavinia as well, uh, as she still mentions her disdain for the beast that is John Clare <laughs> and then realizes that the rest of her family yeah. are dead. So uh, so you don't actually feel any sympathy for the screaming blind girl as she finds her family. They, exactly. They, they, he has yeah. put some stuff in there for it. Yeah, I thought it was fun. Uh, I thought it was funny in the sense that, uh, in case you you didn't, um, or in case you had forgotten how bad she mm-hmm. is, she just mm-hmm. keeps on <laughs> insulting him um, okay. as she kind of walks through that space. Uh, so just just so you know that she is a bad character, and then yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I don't know. I, I was thinking as well. It's a terrible, terrible thought as well. But I was thinking, you know, did he leave a loose end? You know, could Lavinia come back and somehow wreak some sort of a havoc to John? I I doubt mm. she would, but um, that was. That's the um, I guess the the darker side of me thinking. You know, he should have exactly. just cleaned them all out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he should have killed them all. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Any last notes about the finale of uh, season two of Penny Dreadful? Yeah, I just thought a really nifty little reference as well that John Logan injects is a uh, is that of John Merrick um, in the Putney Waxworks, also known as the Elephant Man. Um, yep. a true story, very sad story as well. Um, hideously <laughs> deformed. Um, David Lynch directed a film about it, which is, is very cool. Highly recommended yeah. if anyone hasn't watched it yet, but he kind of rises above his deformity. Um, but he, anyway, yeah. So he was, I guess, around the Victorian time and it's nice that he gets referenced, um, with the Putneys, albeit amongst the freaks. Um, yeah, as they call yeah. It. yeah, absolutely. Um, and also the, there is a, um, a little reference there to the limbless boy in an apple cart, oh, yeah. which is the basis of upsetting the apple cart. Um, in oh. that, uh, whilst it's an economic thing, it was that, um, 
certain traders i mean we still have uh, traders in dublin that use actually prams to sell fruit and veg that go around the the the, the fruit market and that the the carts and um, would be these kind of um things and for a lot of the disformity obviously no medical care that um you you would have uh their their deformed sort of children on the apple cart to move them round and they would lose trade and business to those apple carts that were just literally an apple cart and not an apple cart and effectively a wheelchair as well. Um, that's, so, yeah, it's just fascinating where these phrases come from. Yeah. I wouldn't, I would never yeah. have thought that that's where, where a phrase like that came from. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And that was the prevalence of disformity in, in London in the Victorian yeah. period before proper kind of Medical. universal healthcare mm-hmm. or, or whatever. Um, and just the poverty. So, uh, and lots of accidents. You know, like a lot of um, children were used in factories, Mm -hmm. certainly in amongst the cotton, uh, the weaving and and all that. And, you know, these were very dangerous machines and there'll be a lot of uh, sort of handless or limbless uh, sort of children from, from that. Scary as hell. Right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right off to uh, Henry Street to buy our apples five for fifty, John. Yeah, uh, the grapes <laughs> and the pears. <laughs> there you go. Uh, overall, gentlemen, let's close out season two of Penny Dreadful. Overall, what's your thoughts on the season, Ray? As you're the guest for our seasons of uh, of Penny Dreadful, why don't you kick us off? What do you think of season two of Penny Dreadful? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was a, a very a very solid and a very highly polished and and top quality uh, season. Utterly enjoyed it as well. It, for those that love season one, uh, you won't be disappointed because it retains so many elements of um, what I imagine you'd love from season one in season two. Uh, if you, if I had to, I guess, pick between one of them, I'd still, I mean, I, I still like season one um, in the fact that I felt it was a lot more compact. Um, and that's nothing to say that season two is, is weaker for having um, broader stories, but yeah, I mean, we've got a bigger cast. We've got new characters like Rusk and Roper coming in. We're delving more into uh, characters' backstories. Um, so things are expanding, uh, and there are a lot of characters here that things need to expand on. So it, it, it becomes um, a larger canvas in Season 2. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't know. I just like the compactness of, of Season 1 uh, and, that, and that simple kind of plot thread of bringing a band together and and having them um battle evil um mm-hmm. was really cool but no i uh, loved loved the the villainty which is um evelyn paul is fantastic performances uh so from much. everyone i'd say mm-hmm. everyone brings their a game really great mm-hmm. uh, also we get a couple of i guess similar things with like standalone episodes here similar to, to season one um i think it was um was episode five of season one, which, which showed Vanessa's backstory, um, uh, and her going through the, the mental asylum. Um, over yes, here, yeah. season two, we get the brilliant episode three, which is one of my favorites, uh, mm-hmm. of, of the cut wife and Vanessa again. But yeah, uh, so a lot to love about it. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. overall, very solid. Excellent. Excellent. John, what's your thoughts overall on season two? Yeah. I mean, I, I can't agree with Ray enough, actually. Um, I think. It's, you know, everyone progresses and develops each of the characters, you know, um, that were there in, in season one. And it's, again, 
hugely strong uh, performances with um, Eva Green. Okay, I don't think there's necessarily a seance moment and there's not a possession moment. For, maybe, you know, in the final episode where she is um, combating Lucifer and and her, her fetish doll, there is that. But mm-hmm. I, I just felt you may not get so much of that, but you have that performance with... Um, the cut wife uh, with Joan Clayson uh, and both her and Patty Lapone are just really really good uh, and the performances are absolutely as spot on uh, as ever yeah. um, I really like that along with these kind of developments of the character uh, or all of the characters that we get the involvement of Mr. Lyle more in this season. Uh, you know, he was a favorite of mine from season one. So I really, I, I like that choice that they made. And I like the choice to introduce and expand with um, Inspector Rusk, the, the murders as well. I thought that was a really important element um, here because I think he added a really fascinating dimension to Ethan uh, as Ethan becomes less of the point of view character and gets his story developed yeah. uh, along the way. And of course, what can I say that, you know, the witches, um, not only is uh, Eva Green fantastic, uh, but Helen McQuarrie, I just, um, I, I think she plays this uh, witch of Evelyn Poole, Madame Carly, so, so well. Um, she really embodies it. And I, I think the witches bring a very different element to the vampires, which are largely absent, uh, if they're non-existent in this season. And, um, you know, they, they, they bring a, a sinister and creepy element because they can walk within the day. What, yes, whilst their powers are heightened at night, they are, they walk among us much more closely, uh, in, in the time when we feel comfortable, um, and can still project their, their magic at that time. You know, you see with her sort of ring. And of course, the dolls are just, you know, gosh, I mean, yeah. If it doesn't make you sort of stay up at night, I, I don't know what does. <laughs> it um, actually doesn't scare me as much as it does you. I must yeah, say, I absolutely love I, the, the design of, of uh, these of burn, the dolls. But yeah. Burn them all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> none of these dolls for me. Um, but that's what I love about them as well. You know, it, it's the absent terror in their faces, the dead eyes. Um, just a few mirrors behind their eyes would have really helped them feel alive. <laughs> nice. nice. Um, season one, yeah. yeah. Um, but as well, it's just, I think, overarching. As I say, the vampire's largely absent, and I think you only learn it probably the episode nine where Mr. Lyle says that the, the two brothers. So there, there's a real nice pattern to these two seasons that complement other, each other, which is, you know, season one is about the, the brother that has fallen to earth and this is the brother that has fallen um to hell mm-hmm. um you know and uh dealing with vampires in, in this season with lucifer primarily although i do wonder if it is lucifer that is coming out at the seance uh in season one in which case mm-hmm. there's a little hint there yeah. but that's the connection with madame carly mm-hmm. so uh, th- there's a real nice um that they do they complement one another really well um I kind of still, I think I like them both. I, I don't kind of want to say one or the other, to be honest. Um, but I, I would give this season five Ballyhoos out of five, for sure. Um, you know, I could be snippy and say four and a half. I think I do 
prefer season one marginally um but um it, i think in reality i can't really put much between them um i think it's as solid uh, as before mm-hmm. um and as exciting and as fascinating and as interesting and as scary as hell so um yeah i like that but dolls can go f off to be honest <laughs> nice John. nice uh overall my thoughts and i'm gonna keep it short really because you guys have said everything i, I was gonna say really it's uh it's an excellent second season but i think that absolutely all lands on at the feet of john logan what he was creating here with his story plays out so well in the second season and he's created something for each of his characters that's made them all feel important to the story you know we we didn't really talk about or you guys didn't really talk about lily's story within uh what you were summing up the season but i think what she goes through throughout the season given that she yeah. was kind of comedy girl in season one mm-hmm. who was just having terribly bad things happen to her in this season she becomes a terrifying threat for everybody in the future effectively she's committed herself to being the immortal that wants to rule the world side by side with dorian you know that's a that's a huge arc for that character that wasn't really given a massive arc in season one and so everybody has something to do within the season and i think that's a testament to the writing of of john logan and knowing his actors as well as he does now in the second season he knows how much he can give to each of them to do and i think everybody ups their game for the second season everybody involved it's just such a good job i'm excited to see season three i can't remember much of it unfortunately it's been a long time since i've seen it so i'm excited to come back to it uh, when we get to season three looking at how that style is taken into the next season because that's probably going to inform more about how we discuss Penny Dreadful City of Angels than any of the other show. You know, this, this episode ends with So We All Walk Alone Now. Uh, mm-hmm. Each of our major characters is now off on their own mission and all separated from each other. So I'm expecting that's how we're going to feel about the next season and similarly how we're going to feel about City of Angels when it comes with brand new characters taking on a brand new storyline. So that's where I feel we are. We've ended a massive storyline of these two seasons and now everybody has something new to do when we get into the next season. So very intriguing. Thanks so much, as always, for joining us for our discussions about Penny Dreadful. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on tvpodcastindustries.com. We're getting really excited about uh, Penny Dreadful City of Angels coming up uh, later on in the year. But if you want to support us, you can support us at patreon.com slash tvpodcastindustries. Ray, do you want to let everybody know where they can hear you on your other podcasts? Yeah, sure. Um, if you do like comic books and comic book characters, uh, you can catch me on Into the Night, a Moon Knight podcast. Uh, best place to check that is uh, into the night with a k.libsyn.com. Uh, I also do co-host a, a podcast about Superman. Um, not as well versed with that great character, but you can catch mm-hmm. my thoughts on uh, lskpodcast.libsyn.com. Excellent, excellent. Uh, lots and lots of good uh, good podcasts over there, Ray, that you do and uh, really enjoying them. We will eventually get you to rebound your podcast as Into the Night, the Moon Knight podcast, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> should do, should do. <laughs> We'll be back next time with our discussion about season three of Penny's Redful. Really looking forward to kicking that one off. Thanks so much for joining us.
Catch you later, everyone. Thanks for listening, and uh, go check out this show if you haven't already. Thank you, fellow Darklings, for listening. As always, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Remember, in the words of um, Ethan Chandler, your road may be difficult, but ours is doomed. And hopefully, once we have sideset doom uh, and gone purely into difficulty, uh, we will be back to speak with you again, all about Season 3 of Penny Dreadful. Uh, just remember, fellow Darklings, keep watching, keep listening, and importantly, keep screaming. <laughs> Bye. See ya. Bye. <laughs>